Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Okay, so ha, today we are gathered to celebrate Buddha Purnima. Purnima means full moon, and the full moon of this month is celebrated all over the world as the full moon of the Shakyamuni Buddha, perhaps one of the world's greatest teachers and one of India's most profound philosophers, whose teachings have echoed and reverberated throughout the whole world and into many, many subtle realms beyond. Um, So we're going to spend the entirety of this evening exploring the dizzying heights of Buddhist philosophy. Thank you so much, Jeremiah. Thank you. Um, Yes, the meditation we just did is from the Vipassana tradition, which we'll be talking a lot about today. Some of you are very experienced Vipassana sitters. Vipassana or Vipassana means uh, insight meditation. And as you will see in today's lecture, insight is key to Buddhism. Now, um, what I intend to do tonight is tell you the life and teachings of this profound leader, this profound teacher. Uh, But what I intend to do beyond that uh, is to contextualize that in the broader picture of South Asian philosophy. Welcome, Christina. So doubtlessly, many of you have been to uh, many Dharma talks. You, You know, a lot of you have sat at retreats in Vipassana centers, and you've heard the story of the Buddha numerous times. And and the beauty is that it never gets old, right? The story of the Buddha, for some reason, resonates with everybody, since it is, after all, the story of us, you know, our shared story. Um, Yes, Mads, it's, it's, uh, yes, it's Buddhism day. So we did some chants, some Buddhist chants, like Nam Gyoho and uh, uh, Om Mane Padme Hom earlier. Yeah, so, um, It's going to be a Dharma talk in that sense, in which I will walk you through some of the central tenets of Buddhist teaching. We'll be referencing the central texts of Buddhism, like the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra, um, one of the Buddha's first lectures at the Deer Park in Sarnath. We'll look at the Anapanasati and all these wonderful, beautiful texts. We'll talk a little bit about the various schools of Buddhism, how they differed from one another, how they split. Um, But beyond all of that, I want to talk about how the Buddha fits in with the rest of the philosophies we've been talking about. So um, if you joined us last week, we were discussing practical Vedanta, ways to apply Advaita Vedanta or non-dual philosophy to one's daily life. Um, And I intend to continue doing that. So there's at least two, three or four more videos in that series. But since, you know, Wednesday is Buddha Purnima, today we're going to put that down a little bit. That being said, those of you who have studied Advaita Vedanta or non-dual Vedanta very closely will doubly enjoy today's lecture because you'll start to see the ways in which that philosophy influences Buddhism. Some of you here are yogis. You've been practicing in the Patanjala yoga system for a while. And those of you who are very versed in the Sankhya yoga philosophy will also enjoy this lecture doubly, because I hope to show you how Buddhism overlaps with that. Um, And most importantly, for those of you who have been following our Tantra series every Thursday, um, we're going to interweave a lot of that in today's lecture to talk about the Tantric 
forms of Buddhism. Uh, the, the types of Buddhism that have really spread like wildfire here in America, thanks to the Gelukpa school of the Dalai Lama and all of that. So we have many fascinating stories ahead. Um, but before I get into it, before I tell you the story of the Buddha, the story of us, really, um, I want to say something about science. We're always talking science. Um, and okay, you know, this is especially important for a discussion about the Buddha. Remember, as we discussed, every spiritual tradition in the world are all metaphors. They're all symbols and they're all pointing to the same truth. And that's very important to remember that truth, as the Christ spoke of, is not something you believe. It's not a, a, a bit of knowledge. It's not something you know. Truth, as Christ said, I am the truth, is a, a way of being. It's, it's a feeling. It's a state. It's beyond a state. It's a categorical experience of life. And that truth is the same. It's arrived at by many different paths, though. So a central thing to keep in mind is that truth is one. The paths are many. Now, the beauty of this is that each path is distinct from the other paths. And so you might think, okay, if it's all one truth, it doesn't matter what path I walk, right? Every path is as good as every other path. I might as well just pick one and start walking. In a way, yes. In a way, that's true. As the great Indian saint, Paramahansa Ramakrishna, yes, man, never any coincidence. <laughs> um, as the great Indian saint, Paramahansa Ramakrishna said, um, truth is, uh, the, the Rig Veda, he was citing the Rig Veda when he said, truth is one, the paths to truth are many. He himself walked several paths just to prove that they were all legit. You know, so he was initiated through a female tantrika. So he got his start through tantra. Then he was enlightened again, achieving a very high state of meditative absorption through the Advaita Vedanta tradition with a teacher named Tottapuri. Then he achieved enlightenment through the Vaishnava tradition. And then he decided to just ditch Hinduism altogether. Um, and he went and practiced Islam. You know, he gave, gave up all his Hindu friends. He stopped going to the Dakshineshwar temple. He wore Muslim clothes and he hung out at the mosques. And he found that to be an equally viable path. He encountered the highest, most ecstatic states of Sufism and, and Islamic mysticism. Then he said, well, let me try Christianity. Oh, you can tell this guy was really into um, spiritual practice. And after all, remember, he's believed by many to be an avatar an incarnation of the divine itself, herself. And in a way, an avatar's job is to show us truths that we, we know but have forgotten. You know, so Paramahansa Ramakrishna practiced Hinduism, all the parts of Hinduism, um, so that um, all the people who are bickering about which path was better could be assuaged. All the paths in Hinduism led to the same experience of truth. But then in order to assuage the bickering, not just between the various schools of Hindu philosophy, but also between the various religions present in India at the time, as a result of the Mughal conquest and as a result of British colonization, he decided to practice Islam and deem that to be just as good as, as any of the paths in Hinduism. Then he left that behind, gave up the mosque, gave up his Islamic friends and hung out with just Christians. You know, he practiced Christianity. And one day as he was walking down the street, he saw a figure approaching him, uh, a kind of, you know, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern looking man. And the being walked into him and he felt the uh, visio dei or vision of God or the influx of the Holy Ghost or something. And he had a very powerful uh, Christian experience. So, yes, in a way, it's true. All the paths are interchangeable. You can walk any path and it will take you to the same place. But here's the thing. 
In order for your spirituality to mature into realization, and make no mistake, this is your birthright. Realization is real for each and every one of you, and you are all destined to encounter it, despite what you do. Eventually, you will all find this thing that we're talking about in one way or another. Even the most rank materialism will take you there, sooner or later. Um, there's only one game in town, as Christopher Wallace says, and we're all playing it, whether we know it or not. So yes, in a way, you will inevitably, despite yourself, encounter truth, encounter realization, and encounter enlightenment. Um, but a lot of you are here because you're woken up to the possibility that um, you don't have to suffer that much in order to do it. And you can lessen the amount of hacking away and, and experimenting and you can you know, get to a state that's stable and meaningful sooner rather than later. And, and most of you desire that. And they say once the process has begun, there's no stopping it. And so you being here tonight is part of that process. Okay, so... That being said, different paths appeal to different people. Since in order to meet the realization that is your birthright, you actually do have to do some, some walking, uh, relatively speaking. Okay, this is hard to say after all of our Advaita Vedanta lectures, where I'm like, there's nothing to do. Uh, <laughs> um, relatively speaking, on the level of the body and mind, on the level of changing your day-to-day -day experience from one of feeling like a separate self into one of feeling um, entangled with all that is, you know, the process of going from this illusory, unreal state to the real state that is already your nature. That might seem like a journey. And that's the path I'm referring to. You do have to walk that to some degree. Um, and that being said, you should choose a path that you actually want to walk. You know, and the beauty of there being so many different paths is different strokes for different folks, yes. Different paths appeal to different people. So those of you who are more of a de devotional nature, you know, more interested in the path of the heart, in singing and chanting and, and going into ecstatic visionary experiences. You might be interested in the Vaishnava Hare Krishna movement. You might be interested in dualistic Shaiva Tantra, which is very devotional. Uh, for those of you who aren't into all that like dualistic worshipping God stuff, but who are into mysticism, you know, you like to go into deep meditation and have these Merkaba mystical experiences of visiting Sephiroth and all of that. There's a path for that too, the mystical path. And then some of you are a little bit more intellectually inclined. Uh, you don't like to give your belief into any structure that hasn't been thought through. You kind of sneer at mysticism as an idiosyncratic kind of hallucinogenic experience. Uh, you look for something a little more intellectually rigorous. That's there too for you. And that's known as the path of Jnana or the path of philosophy. Now, different strokes for different folks. That being said, you might tend to uh, change paths as you continue. You might come in a devotee of, of Krishna, and then you might hunger for something a little more intellectually rigorous, dare I say it. And then you might hop the fence to Jnana Yoga. You might come in through the path of Jnana Yoga. Who am I? Who am I? Only Brahman is. The world is false. And then that creates in you a state of such divine bliss that you can't help but to prostrate before an altar, recognizing that it's God worshipping God through God, you know? So in a way, the paths do cross. But it's important to recognize the Buddha was a Jnani. You know, the Buddha was a scientist. The Buddha was a philosopher. He was of an intellectual persuasion and also a mystical persuasion, but, but mostly an intellectual one. So today we're going to talk about what uh, Swami Vivekananda called the most dizzying heights of South Asian philosophy, the most analytically, philosophically rigorous philosophy that I could probably place in front of you ever. Um, hopefully, by the end of this lecture, you would have completely understood the 
fabric of reality. You know, you will know exactly how it is you reincarnate, exactly how it is you continue to reincarnate. And in one elegant, beautiful philosophical move, you will also be shown the way out of that domino or what do we call it? The house of cards uh, that is known as samsara or the wheel of birth and death. Yes. So I've often said, you know, if you're at a party and all the spiritual masters were at that party, um, you know, Lao Tzu would be in the corner saying something absolutely incoherent, content to be by himself in the corner. Jesus would be playing Wonderwall, an acoustic guitar on the couch, surrounded by some, you know, very adoring um, admirers, you know, some very intense adoring admirers. He, he, he had that kind of charisma. And the Buddha would be in the kitchen pouring himself a cup of tea and talking your ear off. The Buddha would be explaining, he would maybe be mansplaining a lot um, because the Buddha was very verbose. The Shakyamuni Buddha um, spoke a lot. Now, the first thing to remember is that nobody actually knows what the Shakyamuni Buddha said. That's, that's something you must remember. Nobody knows what Jesus said either. You know, Paul the Apostle was writing 40 years after Jesus. Um, and Paul, the, the Jew living in Rome, never met Jesus. He only saw Jesus in visionary experience. And that was very real for him. It was real enough for Paul to travel the whole world spreading the good news, you know. Um, it was real enough for Paul to include the whole world in his bliss. You know, and the Jews were upset. What do you mean Gentiles can come and eat at our table? You know, they eat different food. This is going to be awkward. Um, and he was like, no, the power of my realization has sunk into the sea all categories of caste and creed. That's how you know a real master. They no longer see difference, you know. So Paul was a real master um, writing letters to people that read uh, with lines as incendiary as ye sons of God. Ye sons and daughters of Mary, you know, inspiring everyone to not just follow the Christ, but to be the Christ, to find the Christ within. So nobody really knows what Jesus said. We only have Paul's letters 40 years after Jesus, and we have John's gospel 150 years after Jesus. But that doesn't make the message any less true. That's important to remember. There's no need to ascribe a date to something that feels alive and resonates within you now. In that, in that way, truth is timeless. Um, it just gets all these difficult, d- 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 difficult, different expressions. So similarly, similar to the Jesus arc, Buddha is like that too. He didn't speak Sanskrit as some scholars, uh, he didn't speak Prakrit, he didn't speak Pali. He probably spoke some other dialect. Um, and it wasn't until many years after the Buddha that some Sri Lankan monks began to record teachings that otherwise were orally handed down. So that's when we started to see the first schools of Buddhism appear like Vinayana and, uh, and then later they become Mahayana and, and Theravadin or Hinayana Buddhism. So we're going to talk about all of that. But the first point to make is we don't really know what the Buddha said, you know. So what I'm going to teach you now is Buddhism. Um, and we're going to say the Buddha taught us this. But remember that we're talking about an entire culture of many teachers. Yeah, so the second thing to point out, and I'll talk about science. The Buddha was a jnani. Uh, and everyone within that school, all the gurus and teachers, most of them were jnanis. They mostly were intellectually persuaded, very analytical, rigorous thinkers. Now, what do we know about science? We know two things. First, it's a study into cause and effect. So science is the ability to figure out what the effects are behind each of the causes that we experience. Causal interdependence is the name of science. It's the game of science, so to speak. And the less outside entities you posit, the better. So if you can explain something in terms of itself by appealing to things within that without needing to appeal to some outside being in order to explain that, that's more scientific. 
Yes or no, that's, that's quite straightforward, right? Second thing about science is, science is something that you do to verify truths for yourself. So science is not a body of knowledge as much as it is a method of verifying truths. So ideally, if someone provides you a method, you should be able to achieve the same results they got, you know, given you practice the method correctly. So the Buddha is a scientist in that he seeks to explain scientifically as concisely and as coherently as possible your predicament as a human being. And then he seeks to give you a scientifically tested method that he tried and found out to be true that works for you. So wherever you are in the world, whoever you are, whatever time of history you find yourself in, the method is as good as any other time for any other person. Uh, and I'll teach you that method today. It's a very rigorous and beautiful method. And the third thing we know about science, the first, it's cause and effect. The second is it's methods that anyone can practice. The third is um, it must culminate in your experience. So science shuns dogma. Do not take things on faith. In the beginning, you must have provisional faith in the method, but only insofar as the method proves itself to you in the end. And the guarantee of Buddhism, as indeed is the guarantee of yoga, is that it can be shown to you. These truths can be verified by you. And that's the exciting thing about it. Okay, enough preamble. Uh, it's story time. All right, so let's transport ourselves now to a north... Western Kingdom, a small Indian kingdom up in the northern part of India. It's a relatively obscure kingdom. And the king of this kingdom, much like any kingdom, is ambitious, to say the least, and has grand visions for the expansion of his kingdom, as in fact, every Kachatriya or ruling class elite in India ought to aspire to, you know, um, to grow the empire, to build the wealth, to amass fame and fortune, all of that. So this king, interested in his expansionist program, imagine his delight when he, you know, gets a son, a beautiful son, a son whose birth uh, is, is special. A special birth because, you know, there was all these stories about how when the king's wife was pregnant, the trees started to curl over her, giving her some privacy and giving her something to hold while she gave birth. See, ancient Indians gave birth squatting um, in Malasana, garland pose. Some of you practice that on Wednesday. Um, and so the trees assisted the birth and the baby came out walking and where the baby stepped, flowers would grow. So there are all these mythical stories about the birth of this baby. The king naturally was so excited. Wow, I got magic baby. Imagine his delight. So, you know, he brings to the court a very famous fortune teller, one of the greatest sages of the time. And the sage arrives and the king says, look at my baby, magic or no? King is very proud, you know. And the sage looks at him and says, yes, yes, this, this one is magic baby. This one is magicest baby, most magic baby. But I foresee two futures for this magic baby. Both of them are as likely as the other. In one future, this baby becomes a grand king, expanding your empire to every corner of the world, establishing your kingdom in immortality. Um, and he will be the greatest of kings, an emperor. I know. And the king gets very excited. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. I want the birth lot. And then the, the sage goes on. But in the other possibility, this magic baby becomes a teacher. Very understated, huh? Becomes a teacher. He, he, he will um, help lots of people with their problems. <laughs> and you can imagine which of the two possibilities the king were, was more excited about. Mm. 
So the king thought about it. He thought, what, what would turn my son into a teacher? Well, I don't want my son to be a philosopher. The last thing I want is for my son to do too much thinking, lest he become a teacher, um, because that's what teachers do. They think and think and think. Kings don't think. Kings act. Kings kill. Kings rape and pillage and build. I don't know. So in order to maintain the jockey brawn of his, his young boy, the king decided to lock, not lock, but shelter the Buddha, uh, this boy, in a pleasure garden. And this boy grew up in the most opulent of conditions, the most um, extreme of luxuries. In his youth, he was surrounded by handmaidens and courtesans and attendants, seeing to his every need, every pleasure that was humanly possible um, was given to him. And he delighted in all of it. You know, he's getting his foot massages and his manicures. He sits amongst uh, peacocks in an orchard, you know, enjoying the northwestern Indian springtime breeze, sipping pina coladas, what have you, you know. Um, and he parties. He parties for up to 29 years of his life. Um, for most of his adolescence, for most of his young life, he passes his time in this pleasure garden. Completely content, uh, completely enthralled by pleasure. You know, now you can imagine, and remember I told you the story of the Buddha is really the story of us. You can imagine that the Buddha's experience of life is not that different from our experience of life today. We ourselves might not be born to, you know, some obscure kingdom in the north of India, but we certainly are born to, relatively speaking, extraordinary amounts of wealth, amounts of wealth that to someone in that period of time would seem exorbitant. You know, to many people in the world, you are as kings, queens, you are as um, uh, uh, princes and princesses and what have you, you know. Um, but it's not just that. It's that we define each day um, in our own personal pleasure gardens. You know, we've created around us a kind of echo chamber of pleasure. When the song on Spotify is not titillating the senses, skip to the next song. And when Spotify isn't doing it for you, let's go down to East LA and go and watch a rock show in some Korea town hole in the wall um, skate shop. And when that's not doing it for you, go to Carney's on Sunset and enjoy a burger. You know, and, and, and you can see that anything you want, you can to some extent get. You know, and as you look at social media, there's always something to delight you, something to capture your attention. And it's almost impossible for you to find a quiet moment of reflection. You know, the senses are being bombarded at every juncture of our life. You know, sweet music, sweet flavor, sweet smells, perfumes, and um, sweet textures as we lounge on the couch. Okay, you get the point. It's very much like what the Buddha was enjoying when he was a young man in his pleasure garden. Now, much like the Buddha, many of you have also sensed the seeming superficiality of this kind of life. Many of you have glimpsed in the quiet moments, you know, it's, it's very subtle. You'll be sitting at the theater, you know, watching a play or watching a, a, a film. And you know that moment when the ads stop and the movie is just about to come on and you're left alone in the darkness for a moment? It's in that moment, something comes over you like, hmm, I wonder if there's more to life than... And then the movie comes and, and you know, you forget that train of thought. Um, you're at a party. And you've just snorted a line of coke off the table and you're looking around for the next thrill. Okay, who am I going to try to seduce now? And then there is a lull. There's a lull in the party. You're in between conversations. And in that lull, suddenly you sense, 
I wonder if there's more to life than, and then someone comes and talks, oh, nice, nice velvet jacket, you know? You see what I mean? Um, as you move through life, there are these moments, these subtle glimpses into the possibility of more. Something in your soul is restless. Something in you craves a reality that you know is there, but is somehow eluding you. And you don't really know why. You don't really even know why you believe that there is more to this than what you see, smell, taste. You just do. You know, you just feel it. Um, it's a call, if you will. It's a very subtle call. Now, if you are fortunate enough to have more and more lulls through your life, or if you're fortunate enough to encounter some tremendous singularity, like the loss of a loved one or the burning down of a house or some kind of event that completely stops you in your track. If, if you are so fortunate, this moment of craving something more might turn into a general, genuine spiritual quest. Now, the Buddha, one day, is in his pleasure garden. So this is really where our story starts. Age 20-something, you know. He's lounging in his pleasure garden, getting his foot massaged. Someone is fanning him with a peacock feather. When he suddenly hears a song. Now, music is very important for our story today. It appears twice in our stories. So see if you can spot the hidden Mickey, the hidden music reference. So um, the prince hears a song. And it's a very mournful song. You know, a very lilting, tragic song, if you will. And it's coming from over there. The Buddha, lulled by this music, waves his peacock feather attendant away. He tells the people who, who are massaging his feet to stop. And he says, my friends, listen, listen. Shall we go and listen to that song closer? I'm curious. And he, you know, walks and his friends follow. Hello, Red. <laughs> his friends follow and they all go and they see a musician playing this, this song. It's a folk song. A song from beyond the walls of the palace, if you will. Uh, seeming like a metaphor here. A song from beyond the pleasure garden. The exact same song you heard in the movie theater in that quiet lull at the party. It's the same song. So he heard that song and that night he had a very restless sleep. He was tossing and turning and he had all these dreams and suddenly the, the, um, the lie, the superficiality, the matrix into which he was born started to become less and less appealing. You know, remember in the matrix? When Morpheus says to Neo, you've always sensed something a little off about the world around you. Similarly, the Buddha that night was starting to feel that. Um, and the legend goes, it became so intense that one day he decided to go outside. Dare he, you know, say it. He decided to go and check out what was beyond the city, uh, beyond the palace walls. At least maybe there would be more songs like that, you know, who knows. But along with his attendant, he did the one thing his father would not want him to do. He left the palace just to like tour around the village, just to see what the kingdom was like. And he thought, I'm going to be ruling this kingdom one day. I might as well get a feel for what it's like, no? So along with an attendant, he starts to go with his little, you know, palanquin and his retinue and he goes outside and lo and behold, he sees the first of four sights. So this is chapter two of our story, the four visions of, of the prince. The first um, was an old man. He saw an old man tottering on the stick, you know, a very sickly, hunched over man. And the Buddha was horrified. And he turned to his attendant and he said, what in the seven hells and all the heavens is that? You know, and his attendant <laughs> says, dude, that's an old guy. 
You know, and the Buddha, Buddha's never seen this. He's been surrounded by youth and beauty and strength and power. He's never seen old age. And upon being confronted by that, he's naturally disturbed and disconcerted. So we ask his attendant, my friend, is that going to happen to me? The young, strong, handsome prince, me, that's going to happen to young Gautama? And his friend says, yeah, I hate to break it to you. It happens to us all, kings and paupers alike. Old age is inevitable. Now think about your own experience of old age. Somehow we have very craftily managed to shove all the old people under the carpet, so to speak. You know, we've put them all in homes. We've ferreted them away. So we do not have to confront on a day-to-day basis the absolute humiliation of old age. You know, for those of you who have spent a lot of time with old people, you know the reality of it, the dementia, the, you know, pooping in the bed, the, the absolute um, horror of old age. Most of us don't see that. We're sheltered from it. And funnily enough, most of us feel like it happens to other people. Now, we feel like we're going to be young all the time. Like that's not something that's going to occur to us. Much like the Buddha, we are surprised when it does. You know, notice the reaction in your parents when you were a child and they realized their first uh, gray hairs. You know? Mm. When your elders started to notice the wrinkles and notice that they weren't as strong as they were last year. Notice the shock. Notice the kind of protest um, as if it was new, as if it was, you know, uh, uh, completely out of pocket, out of left field. You see, so it's not that different. The Buddha was sheltered from old age, but so too are we. We don't like to look at it. We don't like to believe that it applies to us. So that was the Buddha's first realization. I'm going to get old. In fact, I'm going to get old pretty soon since I'm already 29 and the past few years have gone by like a wisp of of mist, like a dream. You know, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to be 85. I'm going to have seven grandkids who hate me. You know, he realized that old age was coming and it was coming soon. Okay, that's the first thing he saw. Then he saw the second thing. That was the sick man. He saw someone coughing and hacking and being really infirm. And he saw many of them and, and he was... um Uh, similarly creeped out by this and he said what is that and his attendant said that my friend is sickness disease it happens to everyone even me even the young even the beautiful even the princes and the man very unfortunately said yes yes even you even the young even the princes so the buddha horrified by sickness um was also shaken by this. Now notice, until the COVID pandemic, we pretended like we lived in a world without sickness. You know, malaria happened over there in some East African countries, not to us. Dengue fever, Southeast Asia, you know, I, I don't know anything about that. Um, Lou Gehrig's, that happens to some people. I don't know, it happens to Stephen Hawking. It's not going to happen to me. For some reason, I'm never going to have muscle dystrophy. Isn't that strange that we think that? You know, I'm never going to develop cancer. I'm never going to find out I have diabetes. Yet, this happens to so many people. Like, they get to a certain age and they realize there's a lump. They realize um, they're sick, you know. Um, and before COVID, uh, no worries, Vanessa. Before COVID, the world was sheltered from the reality of sickness. So when COVID happened, uh, notice how surprised everyone was. And they're like, oh my God, sickness is a thing. Just like the Buddha, surprised when he was confronted by sickness. So hopefully you're starting to appreciate how the Buddha story is, is our story. You know, it's as true today as it was um, 2,500, 2,600 years ago. Eerie, huh? Um, 
Okay, the next thing the Buddha saw, this was very interesting. He saw a dead man. Remember, the kingdom is by the Ganga, and by the river, people performed funerary rites. They were burning the body of those who have passed. And suddenly the Buddha, this is the nail in the coffin, pardon the pun, the Buddha realized, okay, I'm going to die. I'm young and strong and powerful now, but I will be old. And with old age comes sickness. And with that inevitably comes death. For the young, for the strong, for the beautiful, for the rich as well as for the poor. And now the Buddha realized, how is it um, that I've been lied to this whole time? How is it that I've been sheltered from all of these realities? Why didn't you tell me, Ben? <laughs> our Star Wars, our, our, our mandatory Star Wars reference for the day. <laughs> so um, then the Buddha saw the fourth thing. You know, he saw the old man, the sick man, the dead man. But then he saw the monk. He saw someone, or a sadhu, really, a wandering mendicant, a spiritual practitioner. He saw someone that was actively engaged in solving these three problems, in trying to figure life out. Someone who was interested in what life meant beyond pleasure, beyond power, beyond uh, 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 fame, you know. So that night, the Buddha, tossing and turning in his bed, you know, he's a bit of an insomniac these days, since his mind is troubled with these thoughts of old age, sickness, and death. One night, in the dead of night, the Buddha wakes up, lurches upright on his bed and says, for everyone, I need to figure this out. Like me, they too are perhaps ignorant of the very real problems of old age, sickness and death. Someone has to figure it out. You know, someone has to figure out what to do about these problems. Um, and so driven by compassion, driven by a deep philosophical insight that everything could be answered, everything could be solved, different, dif uh, driven by a scientific need to know, um, driven by a question, was there a solution to suffering? The Buddha decided to up and leave his kingdom. This is a bit of a motif in the Buddhist uh, canon, as you will see when we start talking about Padma Sambhava and Tsongkhapa and Shantideva and all. So the Buddha decides to leave the kingdom. He leaves behind a wife that he loves very much, mind you. A lot of people are like, hey, you know, the Buddha is, uh, is uh, a deadbeat dad because he had a child and a wife and he just upped and left, you know. Didn't even pay alimony. <laughs> No, the Buddha um, really, really loved his wife, really loved his child, but driven by his compassion for the all, much like Rama, driven by his compassion to serve his people as a good king, was forced to part ways with Sita. So too, the Buddha, driven by his compassion for everyone, surrendered his personal motives in life. That night, he jumped on a white horse, leaped over the walls of the kingdom, rode off into the night, leaving all wealth, power, and fame behind. Hi, honey. I just finished. Welcome, Jess. Um, and so the Buddha, you know, he goes into the forest, and the first thing is he does, first, things he, first thing he does is he trades his rich man's clothes for a wandering beggar's clothes. He's like, these clothes don't work for me anymore. You know, I'm no longer the man I was yesterday. So he trades his clothes away, the beggar walks away dressed in finery, and he continues in, you know, his, whatever, his homespun tunic or whatever. Him and Jesus at the party would be dressed very simply. <laughs> so there he is in his potato sack, wandering in the woods, um, and he goes and he finds the other ascetics, the other people who are interested in this quest. Okay, pause the story. Now an aside. What was going on spiritually in India when the Buddha decided to leave his kingdom and go into the forest? So we all know the Buddha left power, money, and fame in order to go and find 
uh, spiritual practitioners. So who did he meet? What kinds of spiritual practices were present in this era? And very likely, he met yogis. You know, so I'm not going to get into the history of yoga, I'm not going to talk about the Vedas or the Upanishads or Vedanta or Sankhya as much as I want to. That's what two Mondays ago was for, you know, our six hour lecture. Um, so you can always refer to that for the history of yoga. But suffice to say, at this point in time, people were already uh, practicing a type of asceticism. Asceticism is a kind of spiritual discipline. It often means denying yourself of certain pleasures, abstaining. Now, the, the Christian traditions are very big on asceticism. You know, Christianity is in the beginning an ascetic tradition. So if Jesus in his loincloth, not loincloth, in his uh, homespun robe was to show up at the Vatican today, he'd be like, dude, I slept on the floor. I, I hung out with beggars and told you to look at the lavender. Even King Solomon was not clad in raiment finer than this lavender. Why do you have purple? So Christianity is a very ascetic tradition. It's all about sleeping on the floor and being scruffy and hanging out with hippies and, you know, um, very flower child movement. The Buddha, uh, likely met fellow ascetics. Remember, Jesus would say, deny thyself. You know, this practice of asceticism was a denial of the body. Why do you think that is? You know, it, it's very simple solution. Pleasure was the problem. Indulgence was the problem. You know, no problem, Alondra. Um, that's not the problem, Alondra. Don't worry. Pleasure was the problem. You know, um, pleasure is what kept you numb to the truths of life. Pleasure is what lulled you into a state of stupor. Pleasure is what trapped you in cycles of addiction. You know, pleasure seemed to be an affront to your freedom as a spirit. Pleasure became associated with the body. It was the craving of the body. You know, the desire to titillate the ears and to taste delicious foods on the tongue, to satiate the sexual appetite. You know, pleasure and the body were seen as inextricably linked. So if pleasure was the enemy, so too was the body. So too was the cravings of the body. People started to see themselves as different from their body, and they started to see their body as the enemy. This, of course, was an, a consequence, an un uh, inevitable, unavoidable consequence of the Sankhya philosophy. So for those of you who have been studying Sankhya, you know that Sankhya is all about creating a distinction between Purusha and Prakriti. Prakriti is seen as this ever-changing world of matter. It's called primordial materiality, if you will. And this was a devolved degenerate state. Much like Plato's shadows on the cave wall, Prakriti was seen as the shadow realm, a place where you were bound to the senses, trapped in cycles of, of uh, repetitive behavior. And the interesting thing is, you were not the body, you were not the mind, you were the purusha beyond prakriti. You were the spirit, you were the individual, you were the mind. It's not right to say the mind, mind is still part of prakriti. You know, the, the manas and the uh, buddhi, all of that was part of prakriti. Okay, wait, I must. Uh, yes, there we go. Welcome, Dana. Sorry. Um, now, prakriti being diametrically opposed to Prusha was seen as the enemy. So the spiritual practitioners of that time were likely involved in demonizing the body, 
punishing the body uh, and abstaining from things that the body required in order to dominate, control, and overcome the body. Where the body used to push me around, now I will bully the body. I will push the body around. No longer will I be a slave to my appetites. My body will be a slave to me. Stand on one foot for five years, you know? Hold my arm up for three. Like that kind of thing. And it could be done. These people, yes, the, the recording, Leah, will all be available on Patreon after this, always. Now, um, you know, and that's going to be in my bio, so yes. Now, the Buddha likely met many of these kinds of practitioners, and he went from teacher to teacher. So he met several teachers and practiced with them. Now, here's a few things that we know from the Buddha's life. He definitely encountered some form of yoga. Now, it's unclear... <laughs> No, the Jesus loves you people are here and someone says Satan loves you. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know. It tickled me. Tickled me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, he doubtlessly encountered some form of yoga. Now it's unclear whether Patanjali predated the Buddha or came after him. It's very clear though that the two are contemporaries. Since the, or at least uh, in the, the historical ballpark of one another, since the Yoga Sutra, uh, many of you are familiar with that text, is written in a very Buddhist style, you know? Uh, so it's hard to say who influenced who, uh, but definitely Sankhya was there. You know, Sankhya, out of which yoga emerged, Sankhya was there. So Buddha practiced perhaps many forms of yoga. And you know, from the study of the Yoga Sutra, the practice of yoga is known as Ashtanga uh, yoga, right? The eight-limbed yoga. There are eight, uh, I don't want to say spokes of the wheel, that would be anachronistic, that's more Buddhism. There are eight things that you need to do in yoga. You know, eight practices in order to achieve what? Samadhi. Samadhi was the highest goal of yoga. Specifically, nirvikalpa samadhi. What does that word mean? It means the complete cessation, nivriti it's called, the complete cessation of mind. When the mind disappears, you distinguish yourself from prakriti. So uh, a famous commentator on the Yoga Sutra, a king, he actually said, it's wrong to call it yoga. The word yoga means union. Uh, it's better to call it viyoga, disunion, you know, because the idea is to distance yourself from prakriti. And you do that by dissolving the mind in a certain meditative process known as samadhi. Now, here's what happened. The Buddha realized Samadhi comes and goes. Much like the pleasures he enjoyed back in his youth, even the deepest meditative absorption, like Samadhi, isn't forever. It does not solve the problem of old age, sickness, and death, even though for a time it feels like it does. You know, so for a moment, as you are sitting there, you know, wrapped up in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you have a mystical experience of pure subjectivity. And some of you have very much, you know what I'm talking about. That experience where all the objects of the mind disappear, much like deep sleep, except unlike deep sleep, you are perfectly alert. So you have an experience of pure awareness without objects of awareness, pure subjectivity. And wow, we can sit in that forever, right? Problem is you get kicked out. Some of you I know are experimenting with this and it doesn't stay. Yes, it's hard. Uh, you will come out of it. It's, you know, sabija samadhi. Um, and so the Buddha would sit enraptured by these profound meditative absorptions, uh, but he found them not tantamount to the problems of suffering. They weren't a permanent cure. 
You know, much like psychedelics, they were cheap, cheap thrills, beginner spirituality, if you will, baby stuff. Um, and these trifles might be delighting these sages, um, but the Buddha wanted more. The Buddha wanted an actual lasting solution to suffering, not this trifle. That's why in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, one of the required readings for today's class, now we're going to give you a bunch of Buddhist literature in a little bit for you to continue with your further explorations into this field. Um, and oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, this will be a slightly longer lecture. We do have a lot to cover. Uh, usually our lectures are one hour. So don't let me hold you hostage. If you have to go, please feel free to just, you know, say goodbye and uh, namaste, all that. And uh, I will send you the lecture recording on Patreon. You know how to find it. Yes. Okay. Um, but we will also do questions and answers towards the end. So I'll probably need one more hour if you, you know, if you, if you can, if you can stomach that. As you see, I've got charts. And when there are charts, some extra hours will come because <laughs> we haven't even gone into the philosophy. We're still in story time. So um, now the Buddha wasn't satisfied with this. And in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, which is a story of, it's a very confusing story because the Buddha is in that story. Siddhartha is a separate character, but Siddhartha is supposed to be the Buddha. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, but in that story, Siddhartha says to his friend Govinda, what I learned with the Samanas, meaning what I learned with the ascetics, with the shamans, shamans, yes, Douglas, wonderful. Uh, we're getting into the juicy stuff soon, don't worry. In like three minutes, we're getting into the juicy stuff. Um, what I learned with the Samanas, and this is, you know, Siddhartha in Herman Hesse's book. Yay, Casey, in New York, late night time. Yeah, we go till, till the early hours. <laughs> okay, so... Um, what I learned with the Samanas, I could just have easily learned with uh, the prostitutes over a bowl of rice wine in the city. And Govinda's like, oh, how dare you say that, Siddhartha? That's heresy. This is religion. That is materialism. And he's like, no, it's, it's not that different. Um, it's not that different. It's just a temporary nivriti, a temporary... Sensation, uh, uh, cessation, you know, it, it doesn't solve sickness, old age, and death. So the Buddha left the teachers. Samadhi didn't do it for him, but please remember, he trained extensively with them for at least a period of six years. Yeah, it's something like that, right? Nish the fish with the eye as the nish or the fish. One of them is a letter one. I can't remember. Um, but now he did train. He trained in yoga for at least six years. He got his grounding in the yoga discipline. And you'll see why that's important once we start talking about the Ashtanga Marga or the Eightfold Path. Okay, so the Buddha learned with yogis, but he decided the, thank you, Douglas, he decided the yogis weren't really doing it for him. You know, that system wasn't working. Not only that, India at this time was seized or gripped in the clutches of the most rank superstitions. India had become dominated by a caste of priestly elite who, through their priestcraft, had enslaved a nation um, by by saying that they were the intermediary between the nation and God. And it's not it's not a it's not a unique story. Every culture has a period of time in which the priestly elite, you know, seizes control by promising salvation by interceding on the behalf of the people with some God. So the Buddha realized there were some real problems with spirituality. The first problem was that all the yogis were doing was getting high in the forest. 
These mystics weren't actually helping people. And here's another thing. Even if these mystics found powerful methods, they were still not interested in bringing those to the people. Those methods required rigorous ascetic practices that were very inaccessible to the common everyday person. And that was the Buddha's target audience. The Buddha wasn't interested in his own liberation. He was interested in that only insofar as he was able to liberate the rest of the world. You know, remember, he's a prince. In him is that kind of princely ideal of caring for the all, of, of, of thinking of the many as opposed to the personal. So uh, that's the problem with mystics. But then the popular religion was overly superstitious, overly dogmatic. And this was because of its inherent dualism. The idea that there is a God separate from the world. And you are a pitiful, um, lowly mortal scrounging for the favor or grace of this God to make life a little bit better. But that didn't seem to solve the problem of old age, sickness and death. You know, God couldn't save you from those things. So the Buddha, much like many atheists of the time, was very dissatisfied with that, you know? Um, so here's what happens. He's in the forest. He decides to leave all his teachers behind. Um, and now he's got like a posse. He's gathered around him a central gang, a gang of ascetics, five of them. They probably had leather jackets and they walked down the hall like we're a clique. You know, he had a, he had a little, like a little, yeah, right. He had a little community um, and they were just practiced austerities together. And because of the Buddha's profound practice, because he was so driven, he became the leader of this motley crew. Nikki Six ain't got nothing on how scraggly these guys were. Just kidding. I like you. I like Nikki a lot. He's a good guy. Um, so... These motley crew of ascetics were practicing and practicing. Here's a second music story. One day, six years into this ascetic practice, the Buddha is sitting under a tree um, by the banks of the Ganga. He's sitting with his five friends and they're all starving themselves to death. I mean, that's what you do. Now they're sitting there practicing their austerities, starving. You know, all of them are very close to dying. They're all very sickly and infirm. Um, what happens is, <laughs> my closet favorite band yes no no it's not even my closet favorite band we do kickstart my heart often come see us in october we're at the viper we'll probably do that <laughs> now here's here's what the buddha was doing he was doing his ascetic practices austerities and suddenly he noticed um on the ganga there was a boat passing by and you know he's sitting there he's like bored he's hungry and of course he's eavesdropping <laughs> So he's listening to the conversations being had on the boat. And it just so happens that there was a music lesson. You know, there was a music lesson going on in the boat. Um, and the instructor, the guru, was teaching the disciple how to tune a veena or maybe a sitar or an ektara or, or different stories say different instruments. So pick your favorite, a bass guitar. Unlikely. But they were tuning something. You know, it's like Orpheus and the violin. Yes, anachronistic instrument. Insert it here. Um, so they were tuning something. Um, and when they were tuning it, the instructor said to the disciple, wait, 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 careful. If the string is too slack, it won't make a sound. But if the string is too tight, it might snap. And the Buddha had his first insight, which was austerity is just as bad as indulgence. They're two sides of the same coin. They're both ways to be obsessed with the body. One way is to indulge the body. The other way is to demonize and beat up the body. Both cases featured a person obsessed with the body, you know? 
Um, there's that joke that someone made. I think Richard Dawkins or, or Christopher Hitchens, he said, there are two people who are obsessed with food, anorexics and the obese. There are two people who are obsessed with sex, um, hedonist and the Catholic church. Do you remember the, the little bit jokes he made? But the idea is that even if you're like abstinent and celibate, you're just as obsessed with sex as the person who plays all the time uh, because both of you are thinking about the same thing. It's just that you have very different attitudes. The Buddha realized this. There are two sides of the same coin. So he got up, walked away, um, and found, founded the middle way, you know, which, which is the idea that the two extremes are actually two sides of the same coin. Let's find some other way, something in between, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we do need a moderator. I, I, I usually say, you know, let the, let the live stream uh, be free. Let all come and, 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 <laughs> oh man. Okay. Let me, let me handle this. Ah, wait, let me just, okay, there we go. No, no, no. You're not to become the moderator. That would be unfortunate. Okay. <laughs> All right. Got a little bit of a bomb there. Okay, so, much love. Okay, so, um, the Buddha eats a bowl. He accepts some rice from a, you know, a, a cattle girl or something. And he eats the rice and his friends see him eating the rice. And his friends are like, Ew, you've abandoned the path and they leave him behind. They're disgusted by him, you know? So now the Buddha realized he's lost all his friends. He's lost his guru. Um, he, he's got nothing to learn from gurus, nothing to learn from friends. He has to turn to the last person from whom to learn himself. He realizes if he wants to know about himself, he must learn from himself. So he goes off by himself and sits under a Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. And under the tree, he says, I will not stand up until I solve the problem of old age, sickness, and death. Remember, meditation, above all, is about intention. That's why when we sat today, um, we had the invitation to find poise and majesty. Remember, the Buddha is a prince. The Buddha is a grand soul, a very noble soul, an Aryan in the truest sense of that word, Aryan. One born, high born, noble born, you know, powerful spirit. The Buddha sat and he said, I will not stand up until I find enlightenment. With that kind of determination, you should practice. You know, that's the first lesson of the Buddha. Intention is meditation. And later it will be codified in the Ashtanga Marga as Samyak Sankalpa, correct intention. So he sat there with intention. He sat. He closed his eyes and he did what? He meditated. How did he know how to meditate? He didn't, he didn't just invent meditation. He didn't sit under the things like that. He learned. Six years he practiced under the yogic tradition. It's just that he sat, practiced his yogic meditation, and when samadhi came, he like wasn't drawn into it. He kept going. He kept going with his meditation. And uh, the story goes, the earth started to shake. Okay, this is not a novel story. You will see it all over the Puranas, um, you know, from the first and second millennium. A yogi sits under a tree and practices tapasya, austerity. And the heat of the austerity causes the world to shake, at which point the gods decide to intercede. These are the Puranas. The gods decided to intercede and send apsaras. Now, tapasya means heat. Heat spiritualizes. So in order to snuff out the heat of yogis, the god sent apsaras or nymphs. Apsara literally means one who is made of water. Jana, I'm on to you. <laughs> so apsaras are water nymphs who come to like dissuade yogis, to seduce them, to douse their fire. You know, so the Buddha, um, he was not uh, immune to this. The daughters of Mara came. 
Mara is like the archetypical demon. Mara is like the ego. The daughters of Mara came. Pride, uh, lust, envy, you know, moha, delusion, kroda, anger, loba, greed. The daughters of Mara, they all came. You know, the consequences of feeling yourself to be this high and mighty important ego. They came to seduce him. They were like, now you have powers, Buddha. You can subjugate the world. You can enjoy even more. Nothing in your pleasure garden could prepare you for the kinds of powers you have now. And they all like danced around him and he sat. So there's a, a nice image. You can see it on, uh, you know, if you type in Buddha under Bodhi tree or something, you'll see the Buddha. Buddha is Goku. Yeah. Buddha sitting and there are like, beautiful women and strong men gathered around him. And there's like an auric field and they're kind of trapped outside the auric field. And he's sitting uninterested, meditating. It's, it's also the story of Shiva and Parvati. Remember from the Shiva or Linga Purana, I believe, Parvati tried to distract Shiva, but he refused. He just sat meditating. So this myth does not originate with Buddhism. It's there. It's, it's, it's a very popular myth. Um, and so hopefully this can contextualize this story with some of the other Puranic stories of that time. So the Buddha, he's impervious to the daughters of Mara. Finally, uh, some of you know Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins. Yes, my favorite Kid story. I used to read it like a million times when I was a kid. But Herschel goes to a village that does not celebrate Hanukkah because there are demons that prevent the town from celebrating Hanukkah. Herschel um, decides to meet each demon one after the other. Each one is successively stronger. And each time he has to be a little more cunning in order to defeat the demons. Um, like that, the Buddha faced off one by one. He just threw his indifference, made it through until Mara came. Mara was the archetypical demon. Mara arose with an army of, of, of demons and they came to the Buddha trying to, you know, dissuade him, to stop him from discovering the secret to old age, sickness and death. You remember the story of Nachiketa from the Katha Upanishad with the king, king of death, Yama, trying to seduce Nachiketa? You remember Jesus in the desert offered many things by the devil? It's the same story. Mara comes, trying to shake. When he realized he couldn't do it through temptation, he tried to do it through force. So what does this great hero, the Buddha, do? He puts his fingers on the floor. And so if you see art from the Buddha, you'll notice he has a, a, a hand, fingertips touching the floor. He grounds. He grounds himself. He finds the middle way. He stays in his body. He stays attached. He stays anchored. This is known as Samyak Smriti meaning right mindfulness. When the aggravation of ego arose, the Buddha destroyed it, not by destroying it, not by fighting it, but by staying grounded, embodied, and present through it. You know, that's the second insight of the Buddha. Intention, samyak, sankalpa. You know, and then he practiced his meditation, samyak, samadhi. But when the ego emerged, samyak, uh, uh, smritihi. Stay with your body, stay with your breath, ground. And then the demons faded away and the Buddha blinked his eyes open. This happened over the course of a night, by the way. So really, it takes only one night. Not the three days and three nights of Nachiketa and the Katha Upanishad. Just one night. One night to enlightenment. <laughs> Tonight, some of you will do it. Don't worry. <laughs> so um, there he is, the Shakyamuni Buddha. He, woke, he opened his eyes. He's still a prince. At this point, he's a prince. But when Mara disappeared, he opened his eyes and he realized he was no longer the prince that he was a night ago, yesterday. Um, he had discovered something. In that night of meditation, he had come upon some very deep insights, which I will begin to pass on to you now. So the story goes, and Zimmer, you know, a great uh, 
author describes a legend of the Buddha. He's walking out of the tre- the grove of, of trees and a, a boy sees him and says, what are you? You know, seeing the glowing radiance of the Buddha's face, this, this man's face, this prince's face. The boy didn't ask, who are you? The boy said, what are you? And this fellow said, uh, and the boy said, are you, are you a deva? Are you a devi? A god? And, you know, a shining one? And he said, no. He says, are you, are you a demon? He said, no. Are you, are you? And, you know, he's asking these questions and, and, and this prince would just say, no, I'm not that. I'm not this. Neti, neti. Not that. Not that. And then the Buddha said, uh, simply, I'm awake. Aham buddhasmi. I'm awake. Simply. He didn't define what he is. He defined what, what he does. You know, it's like a verb. I'm awake. Awake to what? Okay, now we're going to get into the story has been told of the prince turning into the Buddha. It's your story. Uh, and you know what? I'm actually going to fast forward to the end of the story before I give you the teaching. And the end of the story is the Buddha eats some poisoned food. Uh, devotee, towards the end of the Buddha's life, he's well into his 80s now, you know, his long life teaching all over India. So fast forward, um, the entire nation has been converted by this new movement. You know, he's preached at temples, he's preached in cities, he's preached under trees, he's spoken in the uh, gardens of rich men, he's spoken in the soup kitchens of beggars, he's, you know, set ablaze the spirituality of India. After a long career teaching, um, the Buddha was offered poisoned food by a well-meaning disciple. You know, the disciple didn't know any better and he offered food just, you know, to be kind, to offer the Buddha, to offer the teacher some hospitality. The Buddha, the perfect guest, although he knew the food was poisoned, ate it, ate it anyway. Yeah, yes, you know, Claire, exactly. That's the funny thing about the prophecy. He did become a great king. And his empire, his message spread to all corners of the world. Buddhism is one of the greatest imperialist projects of our civilization, which you will learn about today. All the ships sailing, their Coptic Greece, all... We'll get there, don't worry. But at this juncture, the Buddha knows the food is poison, but he ate it anyway. How do we decipher that? You know, he knew it was poison. So there are three interpretations. One... Because he had this insight, the insight I'm going to teach you now, it meant that he was free from the fear of death. It meant nothing to him. He felt like he had given his message. Eh, whatever. Audi 5 thou. Because he wasn't there. Lights were on, but really no one was home, you know, as you will learn when we deliver this teaching. So he ate the food because he had nothing to lose. Uh, but he was also, funnily enough, notice this. Even though he wasn't there, even though he had anatma theory, he wasn't an asshole. That's the irony. Once he realized the absolute absence of self, it didn't turn him into a cold motherfucker. Instead, it turned him into the most compassionate, loving person. He started to be so nice that he was willing to eat poison food just so he wouldn't hurt the feelings of his student. You know, because he knew if the student was sent away, his spiritual life would be wrecked. Can you imagine meeting the ultimate teacher only to have that teacher look at your food and go, ew? That man would never have recovered from that. That kind of hit would have followed that fellow for many births. And so the Buddha, not wanting to interfere with that person's sadhana, that person's spiritual practice, decided not to eat the food, you know? (laughs) Yash. (laughs) If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. (laughs) Which we'll talk about in a bit, don't worry. Yeah, already... (laughs) That's funny, Fabrizio. Uh, Very... He was apparently very spry, you know? Nobody loathed old age that much, Fabrizio. As you'll realize, the oldest man, like the uh, Hugh Hefner, will pretend that he's young till the very end, as you will see. 
when we explain the Pratitya Samutpada. Uh, uh, okay, so he ate and he died, you know. And the third reason why the people say he ate the food is because he realized he was stunting the growth of his disciples. He had become the very thing. Anakin, you became the one thing you swore to destroy, our second Star Wars reference. He became dogma. He became a belief system. He himself rejected all dogmas. He himself decided to be his own guru, to learn from himself, to study nature, to study life. Uh, but his disciples have turned away from that and instead are studying him. And he saw that as a problem. And he knew as long as he stuck around, they wouldn't grow in his shadow. So he was like, Audi 5000. Much like Socrates drinking the poison. Here's another parallel for you. We don't know Socrates existed, right? We don't really even know Jesus existed. And we don't really even know Lao Tzu existed. And we don't know the Buddha existed. Do we need them to be men? You know, can they not be principles? Can they not be the every man, the every woman, the every person? You know, what makes Jesus extraordinary is his absolute ordinariness, his simplicity. You know, what makes the Buddha extraordinary is not his ability to meditate. It's his extraordinary question and his willingness to find the answer. Why are those things out of our reach? You know, how sad that we have outsourced spiritual work to Jesus and outsourced all our dark thoughts to the devil. Poor Jesus, poor devil have to do all your work for you. <laughs> anyway, so the Buddha realized they were turning him into a bit of a guru, a bit of a cult icon um, and unwilling to do that. He left. Okay, so that's the bookends of the Buddha's career. But one last thing to mention about his end. When he ate the poison food, he became very sickly. He decided to give one less private, one last private. He didn't give a big lecture, you know, when he died. He gave a private. Isn't that interesting? He didn't go out with like a big little Richard, like, like you know, big sermon atop the mount. He was just like, yeah, a guy came to see me. I'll see him. You know, his attendant Ananda came in and said, there's the guy here to see you, but I, I told him to go away. I mean, you're really sick and, and you should be resting. And the Buddha's like, bah! bring him in, bring him in. Here's another parallel for you. When Ramana, sorry, not Ramana, Ramakrishna had throat cancer and he was dying from throat cancer. His disciple said, why don't you heal yourself? Ramakrishna wouldn't. He said, what? You want me to bring down my mind, which I've surrendered to the most high to the level of this body? Man, he didn't say my body, he said this body. He also had the same insight. And he was willing to happily die, you know, from throat cancer. One of the most excruciating forms of cancer, you know. And he continued to teach, even though he literally couldn't talk. Like, it was excruciating to talk. Ramakrishna continued to give privates, you know. So that's something else you must know about the Buddha's life. His last lesson was not a, a superstar level. It was just one dude, one stranger who had walked a long way to see him who would not be turned away. That's why we try not to kick people out of this chat, you know. Buddha would not have done it, so we must not. Um, so anyway, he came, and what did the Buddha say to him? He said two things. He said, my boy, remember this. Everything decays. That's the summary of his whole life's teaching. And the second thing he said was, be a lamp unto yourself. Those were his final words. Be a lamp unto yourself. Find out for yourself. Don't take anybody's word for it. Find out for yourself. And this is the secret of Buddhism's appeal in the West. Doesn't want you to take anything on faith. Okay, so now the teaching. So let's go back to when the Buddha becomes the Buddha. He's enlightened. I am awake now. The first thing he decides to do um, was go and teach. You know, and who did he teach? His five old disciples. Okay, his five disciples could be his five senses or his five aggregates. 
Because in Buddhism, there are five parts of your body, five composites. So the disciples might be a metaphor for that. Who knows? Anyway, so he goes back to his five disciples. Um, if you think of his five disciples as a metaphor, by the way, there's one advantage. I will tell you about the uh, five, five aggregates in a bit. But if you see the body as made up of five parts, which I'll tell you in a bit, then the five disciples are each part, right? You know what? that's showing us? It's showing us that the Buddha, his awakening was the beginning of his spiritual journey. After awakening, he had to integrate what he awoke to. He had to integrate it into his five bodies. He had to become, he had to live what he had realized. Isn't that interesting? Um, and he even said in some sutras, it says, uh, enlightenment is the beginning. Bodhi, awakening is the beginning of the spiritual life, not the end. You know, so anyway, here he is with his five disciples, metaphorical or real, uh, in a deer park in Sarnath. I don't even want to get into deers. Shiva often sits on a deer skin. Um, but there's a lot of metaphor there with deers. It's also the heart chakra animal, you know, but we'll put aside the deer for now. Ah, you know, it's not going to be a six hour lecture. No deer. So I'm just going to give you the teaching in Sarnath and then we'll move on to Vajrayana Mahayana Buddhism. All right. So, um, the teaching in Sarnath is known as the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. Some of you are like super Kali expialidocious. It basically means the setting into motion of the wheel of Dharma. You know, the turning of the wheel of Dharma. And we must uh, really talk about deer adds four hours to lecture. Yes, it's true. It really is. Animals will take all our time. And, and Claire and I will have a nice back and forth because we love those things. Little animals. <laughs> anyway, um... <laughs> Oh dear, Fabrizio says. <laughs> what would we do without this, Fabrizio? <laughs> oh dear. Now, um, this lesson in the deer park was the core of Buddha's teaching, the central part of his message. And it comes to inform all other forms of Buddhism. So we're just going to focus on that, even though there are many sutras attributed to the Buddha. Good night, Christina. So nice to see you as always. Yes. Many sutras were attributed to the Buddha. Um... Uh, someone made a Harry Potter reference. So maybe, maybe. We, we're trying to connect everything. We're trying to harmonize all spiritual traditions. And there's definitely a place at the table for Harry Potter and that symbolism. I don't know. Uh, I'm Star Wars, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, do we know his language? No. Now, uh, most of the sutras, first they were written in Sanskrit. Pali and Prakrit are two languages that are kind of like pedestrian Sanskrit. Now, remember, there's Vedic Sanskrit. And then a guy named Panini... Uh, formalized the rules of Sanskrit grammar. And after Panini, remember Panini was after the Vedas. So after Panini, Sanskrit became systematized and texts were written based on Panini's grammar. Uh, the Yoga Sutra, by the way, was not Patanjali's first work. Patanjali was a grammarian first. He was interested in Sanskrit. So the texts were first recorded by like Sri, Lan Sri Lankan monks in Sanskrit, you know, and then there were Pali texts, was, like the Pali canon and the suttas, you know. Uh, yeah, Pali comes from Sanskrit. It's like, it's, uh, yeah, in a way you can think, it's like a folk language. Pali is like, uh, Pali and Prakrit. There's a nice book, it's called Language of the Snakes. You might be interested in it. Um, and it traces how these languages emerge from Sanskrit, language of the snakes, um, and kind of introduction, uh, intercession between, in intercession, inter, um, section of Pali with Sanskrit, with Prakrit, with the Dravidian languages like Tamil and all that. So, um, yeah. Okay. So Sanskrit, yes. <laughs> We've been doing this a while, Jess. Many, many years. Now, uh, not on Zoom, actually. On Zoom, we're doing it one year, but we've been doing the hell out of it. Okay, Panini. <laughs> yes, not that Panini. Okay, Panini. So now, uh, 
Pali suttas. They're called suttas in the Pali. They come up. Uh, there are some Sanskrit sutras. But um, we have heard that the Buddha might have spoken a language. I'm going to butcher it, but maybe it's Ardha Magadhi or something. Ardha something. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the people we'll reference today, talks about it in the beginning of um, his the heart of the Buddha's teaching, transforming suffering into joy and liberation. He does talk a little bit about the languages of the Buddha and some of the ways in which it was recorded. But much like Jesus, much like Socrates, much like Lao Tzu, they were recorded like posthumously, you know, many years after the fact. Ah, uh, destiny. I'm so happy destiny has come. Okay, so uh, now we get finally some sutras emerging, some texts. Uh, and there are many throughout the Buddha's life. The Dharma Chakra Pravartana was the central Sutra, but then there are others, you know, there's the Heart Sutra, Anapanasati, which is one of my favorite. It's like central to the Vipassana, Vipassana tradition. Um, so here we are. We have the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra, and we're just going to study that one today. It's very brief. I'll just give you the main ideas. Um, and I won't really do the Heart Sutra as much as I want to. Um, we won't really talk Nargarjuna. Um, but I just want to hip you to these kind of landmarks, and then you can, and give you some places to. Uh, check it out for yourself. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra, the setting into motion of the wheel of Dharma. Now this is the Buddha's central teaching. Yes. So the first thing he teaches is the four noble truths. I'm going to give you many lists today. Uh, remember we talked about science. It's very systemic. It's very structured. It's the complete map of reality and your place in it. Uh, so don't mind the, uh, the analytical nature of this. Some of you will really enjoy it. Some of you will be like, not another list. Uh, for those of you who feel bogged down by all the lists and classifications, it's funny because there's a list and then there's a list within the list, like the line at Disneyland to get into the line, to get into the line, to get into the ride. There's like the four noble truths and there are three levels of each truth and there are four levels of each of those. It's, 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 it's complex. Um, but remember, Swami Vivekananda said, and I love this. The Buddha was the sanest man who ever lived. Uh, there were no cobwebs in that brain. <laughs> he had such clarity, you know. Um, so some of you are going to enjoy this, this intellectual exercise. Um, but if, you know, it's, if you're getting kind of lost in all of it, just like let it, you know, like just, just feel into what it's pointing to. Another favorite Buddhist quote of mine attributed to the Buddha is, do not confuse the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. What the Buddha is talking about is not what I'm going to tell you. These are just roadmaps. They're just glimpses into the lived experience of what the Buddha is, is pointing you to. So if these lists or whatever seem like too much, uh, just feel beyond them into that place that you recognize as being intrinsic to you. In other words, just receive the vibe of the teaching, as many people did, you know. Yes, it's organized. The Buddha was, mm, okay. Uh, and that's why, you know, we all look up to him. Uh, greatest South Asian teacher, I would say. Uh, yeah, he was a Virgo. <laughs> yeah, ascendant and sun in Virgo. He's probably triple Virgo, you know. Had Mars in Virgo too, I don't know. Uh, no, his Mars was in 12th house in Pisces, probably. I don't know. Harini is here. Harini will, will, will do the chart of the Buddha. This is, I don't know, uh, the, the full moon of this month. You know, May full yes. moon. <laughs> he was a Gemini, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, here's some Gemini magic for you. So the four noble truths. Let's talk about them first. There are four things that the Buddha discovered. This is going to get confusing because people became very obsessed with each of these truths. Um, so there are four. 
And people have really misunderstood these truths over the years. And I'm going to point out some errors that have happened in the history of Buddhism, like swaths of Buddhism have committed sometimes a lot of errors um, with these four truths. So let's start. The first noble truth. In China, they're called the holy truths, by the way. It's very interesting. The first insight. Um, And in fact, let's not call them truth. Let's call them insights. There were four insights. The reason I want to call them insights is because you're meant to have them. So... This only works if you get it. Uh, The Buddha got it and he's teaching you what he got, but ultimately you need to get it too. So if you just accept these four things that I'm going to tell you, it won't do shit for you. Like it's really not going to help you except make you feel a little better for a little while, you know? Now, the four insights, the first one, and this is like a bonus insight. I'm going to like put a bonus insight here. The one insight that gives us the other four. The causal interdependence of all things. The first thing the Buddha realized meditating was that this world is a sufficient explanation unto itself. Can you dig that? Everything is inextricably linked in a web of causality. Everything is caused by some other thing. Uh, To use the language of the Buddhist, everything is other powered. Best way to translate it, everything derives its existence uh, from some other thing, which in turn derives its existence from some other thing, which in turn derives its existence from perhaps that first thing. There is, in meditation, an insight into the causal nature of the universe, the causal interdependence of the universe, and that shows the Buddha um, that you don't need anything outside of that. And this will eventually lead to the atheism of the Buddhists that become very popular with all the, uh, you know, Americans who grew up in Catholic families or Jesuits or whatever, you know. Um, But yes, the world is a sufficient explanation from the world and it can be understood. That's another thing. This isn't like a mystical, oh my God, it's so magic, man. Isn't that? It's a world that can be understood in a mind purified through spiritual practice. Like you can be smart enough to get it and the Buddha got it. He got it, capital I, it. Uh, Welcome, Red. Happy you're here. Okay. Uh, Yes, Fabricio and Red are going to be up for a little bit. It's like morning where they are. (laughs) Okay. So, um, the causal interdependence of the world gives us four four truths. The first is, um, no-brainer, the first truth is the one that the Buddha already intuited uh, when he was a youth. And that is, suffering is pervasive. I'm going to say it that way. Suffering is pervasive. You know why we have to say it that way? Because if we say everything is suffering, we get into metaphysical trouble. I, it's, it's unfortunate, but for many years, Buddhist scholars were invested in proving metaphysically and ontologically that the chair is suffering. You know, uh, people were so enmeshed in this first noble truth that they forgot that it was a psychological truth or a a, a, a humanistic truth. It wasn't a metaphysical or ontological statement. Um, In fact, uh, Buddhist ontology is very simple, as you will see in a bit. It's like a a very interesting... uh, absence of ontology almost (laughs) it's the inverse of ontology so the buddha says suffering is pervasive which means you will suffer in life as long as you don't have the next three insights you know maybe if the chair is a product of slave labor yeah um no not even yeah yeah there's like causal interdependence right but they were trying to show that slave labor isn't suffering the chair is suffering i don't know maybe some mystics might see that you know they might see the chair and it's vibrationally off like eating meat is sometimes difficult 
when you're meditating because the animal was killed in such fear. So the meat is suffering. I don't know. Maybe there, there might be something to it. But my claim here is that this might not be what the Dharma, Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra was saying. The first insight is a very simple insight, not to be overly speculated upon. It's simply to be realized. And it's very easy to realize this. There are three levels of suffering. Okay, so now we have, yeah, sorry, Red. Some the, the TikTok uh, live stream is rather exhausting. <laughs> I read all of it, by the way, but uh, that's why I don't respond sometimes. Okay, so um, what the Buddha was saying was the same thing that he had already intuited all those years ago, which was suffering is pervasive. And here's your first list within the list. So in the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth, there are three ways to suffer. The first is the suffering of suffering, which is like, like just, you know, kind of obvious suffering when you have a headache, when you're bored, when you're hungry. The suffering of suffering have very obvious cures. When you're hungry, eat. When you're bored, come to this lecture. <laughs> um, they have very obvious cures, but they don't last. You know, so you'll get hungry again. You know, if you're sick and you cure yourself, you're not free from sickness. You're still susceptible to the next sickness. So suffering of suffering, like torture, political oppression, sickness, these can be cured by very mundane means, but they are never going to be ultimately cured. In fact, in philosophy, we call this the nirvana fallacy. When we think we can eliminate HIV or poverty, or we call that nirvana fallacy. You know, it's kind of funny. Nothing to do with the Buddha, but something to do with him. So he said one, suffering of suffering. The second is the suffering of change. So change is not suffering, but there is a way in which we relate to change that makes it feel like suffering to us. So everything changes. That's another thing the Buddha realized. Why does everything change? Because everything is causally interdependent. Because everything depends on other things for its being, when those other things change, it too will change. Everything is moving. We live in a world of flux. This is exactly what is meant by prakriti. So it's a yogic idea, the idea that we live in a state of flux. The word prakriti literally means creatrix or primordial materiality, it means changing. So because things are changing, the things that you like will leave you. Your loved ones will die and will leave you. They will change, you will change. If you expect them to be like harmonious with you all the time, you've got another thing coming. The body will change, your appetites will change. The things that you thought would make you happy stop making you happy. Everything is changing. And because you pretend otherwise, there is suffering. And now the third level of suffering is the most subtle, which is the suffering of anathma, the suffering of void, so to speak. The belief that there is a God apart from nature and that there is a soul within the body. These beliefs cause you to glom onto things that are not there and this wishful thinking will punish you when it lacks fulfillment in your life. You know, so you are suffering from very real mundane causes, which cannot be cured. You are suffering from the inevitability of change, which you seem to be resisting at every opportunity. And you're suffering because you think yourself to be a soul and you think there to be some God, some grace, but beneficent being, uh, and you're going to be disappointed. Okay, so three things. Now another list of three. Each one of these four noble truths have to be realized on three levels. The first is the statement of the truth. The second is the recognition which is your own insight into its reality. And the final one is the internalization. Those of you who were here last week at our Vedanta lecture, this should sound like very similar, right? Man, uh, Shravana, Mananas, Nididhyasana. 
It's not different. The Buddha said, once you hear this truth, Shravana, the next thing you have to do is recognize it for yourself, Mananas. Think about it. Work it out in your own reasoning, with your own sattarka, with your own logic, with your own experiential data. Work out the truth of this and finally internalize that truth. You know, your problem, Buddha said, in Sarnath is that you know that things are changing. You pretend otherwise. It's not because you don't know. It's just because you haven't internalized that knowledge. You know? So the next time you eat the chocolate cake, if you really know all things are suffering, you know that it's just going to aggravate your craving for more of the same. Aisha says, yeah, no. And, and soon you're going you're gonna to learn why, Aisha. The Buddha will show you without a shadow of a doubt that there is no such thing as a soul. Um, and we Advaitins agree with him. <laughs> we also agree that there's no thing in you called your soul, uh, which will, you know, continue to explore together over many classes. Next week, we're doing more Vedanta, so you'll get some of that too. For now, though, I just want to harmonize these two ideas. Um, the three ways to interact with the Sutra, listening to it, recognizing it, and internalizing it, and how that harmonizes very nicely with Shravana, Mananas, and Nididhyasana, which you learned last week um, from our Vedanta lecture. So you see, it's interesting. It's all very interwoven with everything else that we're learning. Okay, so uh, the first noble truth, there is suffering. Suffering is all pervasive. There is nothing in the world, as you know it, that is not suffering, since everything is susceptible to change and everything is ultimately devoid of a self or devoid of God. You know, so suffering is, all right, that's our first noble truth, not meant to be a metaphysical statement, just meant to be a recognition of where we're at when we start spiritual practice. Now, the Buddha starts with this noble truth because it was the way he started. You know, remember, all spiritual masters to some extent are idiosyncratic, and that's good. They teach you what's worked for them. Now, that's the way it should be. They teach you spirituality as they've discovered it. So ultimately, you are never free from the idiosyncrasies of your teacher. Happily, you know, that's why it's nice to have lots of teachers. Now, the Buddha started his spiritual quest with this insight. So he also is projecting that and is saying, if you are here, it's probably because you've sensed what I sensed. I just want to hammer it home that it's not just some things are suffering. All things are suffering. Dukkam, dukkam, sarvam dukkam. And make no mistake, all things are suffering where you're at now, you know. If he had stopped there, he would be a French philosopher smoking cigarettes on left bank, yes? There's, there's, no, there's no purpose to anything. It's all, you know, you make your own meaning in this world. Uh, but he didn't stop there. He went a little further. Now, remember, the meta-truth, the, the meta-noble-noble truth that's giving birth to all these four noble truths is the interdependence of all things. Because suffering is... Buddha naturally asks, what's the cause of that? Remember, all things are causally interdependent. So suffering just isn't a thing. There must be something behind suffering that causes suffering. So here's another mistake that Buddhist schools often make, and that is to say, only desire, <laughs> Red says, still nice to be French and smoke cigarettes near Lassian. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yes, many, I, I think Satra would have very much enjoyed the Buddha. You know, they would have really gotten along. Camus, Satra, and the Buddha smoking cigarettes in a cafe, Parisian cafe. <laughs> That's an image. Okay, so, um, <laughs> yeah, no, because he wouldn't have turned down the cigarette either. Remember, he was very hospitable. <laughs> uh, whose lungs? My lungs? <laughs> so anyway, um, the second thing that uh, some, some Buddhist schools mistake is to attribute suffering to just desire. Trishna is the word, which means thirst. So the second noble truth, remember the first noble truth is 
suffering is pervasive. Suffering is not an ontological statement. Uh, the chair is not suffering. Um, suffering inheres in our relationship to anithyam. It inheres to the causal interdependence of all things that guarantees the inevitable change of those things since they are dependent on other things. So suffering is on a psychological level, on a relational level, and the cause of suffering. So here's our second noble truth, a second holy truth. The cause of suffering is Trishna craving. Okay, one thing you have to know is that it was a convention in Sanskrit and even in, in Prakrit or Pali, there was a convention during this historical period of India to imply a list by saying one of its many constituents. Do you see? So when they say desire is the cause of suffering, actually, it's very likely that it isn't just desire. It's pointing to a list that we know as kleshas. The kleshas do not belong just to yoga, though you will in, 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 uh, what do you call it? encounter them in the Patanjala Yoga Shastra or the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. So in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, you get five kleshas. I know a lot of you have done teacher training, so here's your quiz. What are the five kleshas? No, no, no. Avidya, uh, Raga, Dvesha, Abhinivesha, you know, um, Asmita. Uh, these are kleshas. It's a list. It's a long list of stuff. It's not just Trishna. There's Moha. There's Krodha. There's Loba. The list differs in its constituents, but generally the list is as follows. Avidya meaning spiritual ignorance. Asmita, egoism or egoity. Raga, craving after things. Dvesha, pushing away things. And finally, Abhinivesha, fear of death. They're all interrelated. Uh, lack of spiritual knowledge makes you think that you are this body and mind, which gives you an ego. The ego hankers after experiences that are pleasant to it and shies away from experiences that are not. And it fears death because it really takes itself to be the body and the mind. So in the second noble truth, it might not just be Trishna. It might be a whole host of kleshas. But what you should take away from the second noble truth is this. Suffering has a cause. That's actually what you should take away. Why? Because look at this. If you look at the world as cause and effect, if you look at the world scientifically like this, what does it allow you to do? It gives you control. So if you know that if you turn on the light, if I, if I click this plastic switch, light comes on. If I swipe my credit card at Whole Foods, I get cereal. <laughs> I know to link one cause with an effect. Then I know if I manipulate the cause, I manipulate the effect. If I don't swipe my card at Whole Foods, I'm not getting the Kashi Golin cereal. This lecture brought to you by Kashi Golin. <laughs> my favorite cereal. Now, if, if I don't swipe the card, I don't get the cereal. If I don't turn the light on, I don't get elect like light in my house. So causality, causal interdependence of things is enough for you to take away from the suffering has a cause. Okay, level three, yeah? The third noble truth is, since everything is causally interdependent, since suffering has a cause, if not the cause, then not suffering. This is known as Dukkha Nivritti or Dukkham Nivritti, the cessation of suffering. So the third noble truth, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh calls it well-being. It's just the truth of well-being, the idea that you cannot suffer. You know, suffering is not inherent in the change. Change doesn't cause suffering. It's your relationship to change that causes suffering. So the causes of suffering are desire, pride, envy, uh, all that stuff. Um, but if not the causes, then not the effect. So the third noble truth is the most optimistic statement 
you know, that you can imagine, which is the, there is a way out. I have found it. Now, the fourth noble truth is the clincher. So the fourth noble truth is the, the, the blow that strikes down the house of cards. You know, the fourth noble truth says, here it is. Isn't that interesting? Life is suffering. There are causes for suffering. There is, because there are causes, there is a way to avoid those causes. And here they are. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Here it is. I'll give it to you. I'll give you the method. And when you practice the method, you will recognize nirvana, which means cessation. Nivriti, dukkam nivriti. Uh, what is nirvana? It's actually the cessation of the causes of suffering. So when you take away the causes, there's no more suffering. The four noble truths should collapse on each other. This caused Buddhist scholars a lot of trouble because they were trying to maintain the ontological integrity of each of these truths, but inevitably they would encounter logical fallacies. Like, how can you in one breath say everything is suffering and in the next breath say everything is void? Which is it? Is suffering void? Surely they want to say that. Su void is not a thing. So how can void have properties? Suffering. Uh, does the void cause suffering? Surely not. Because suffering is caused by something and you can see the logical jungle that you can get lost in with the Four Noble Truths um, is very dense. So let's understand the Noble Truths in an applicable way, um, which is very simple. It's funny, someone just said, I, I need to buy you a Te Tarek, homie, which is so funny because it's a reference to back home that it's just, thank you. <laughs> I'm filled with nostalgia. This little boy is very happy. We'll share one in a mama. Okay, so um, the fourth noble truth is Ashtanga Marga, the eightfold path or the eightfold way. Remember, we talked about yoga and how it's Ashtanga Yoga. It's not surprising that the Buddhists have the Ashtanga uh, Marga, the eightfold path. Now, what is the Eightfold Path? Okay, before I give that to you, I want to give you another diagram, another list. Uh, this is known as the Pratitya Samudpada. This is a beautiful list explaining how reincarnation happens. So here's the diagram. I have it for you here. I don't know if you can see it, but there are 12 items on the list and they're a circle because they're causally interdependent. So this is a diagrammatic representation of what the Buddhists call samsara. Now this is a central idea to Buddhism that absent of spiritual knowledge, absent of Ashtanga Marga, which gives you the third noble truth, well-being, absent well-being, you are caught in a cyclical um, cycle. Did I just say cyclical cycle? Yes, I did. A cyclical cycle, just to emphasize the cyclical nature of it, um, of birth and rebirth. You know, um, you continuously take births only to be disappointed, only to crave birth more. You can think of it as the predicament that many World War II pilots experienced when they were marooned on islands without water or food. They turned to drinking salt water and they went very crazy, very fast. Salt water only makes you thirstier. But when you're thirsty, salt water looks pretty good. I mean, it's the ocean. Look how much water there is. And, you know, it, it drives you wild. So the predicament of the marooned World War II pilot is very much our predicament as long as we stay caught in samsara. So I'm going to explain the diagram now. It's Pratitya Samudpada. It's from the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra. Here's your next list. You got the four noble truths, the three levels of each truth, you know, the four levels of that, which is, uh, 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 what is it, anithyam, 
transiency or change, dukkham, suffering, um, shunyam, void, and anatman, lack of a self. And don't worry about that for a moment. Uh, list upon list. Here's your next one. So, Pratitya Samutpada lists 12 steps or 12 uh, stages guaranteeing a cycle of rebirth. The first is avidya. It's wrong to say first because it's a wheel, so you can put number one anywhere. But let's start with avidya. Okay, so avidya, we'll just arbitrarily say, avidya is the lack of spiritual knowledge. Avidya literally means no knowledge. Vidya, V, same as in video in English, means to see. Avidya means to not see. So vidya means knowledge. Avidya means to be without knowledge. Uh, so it's ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of the emptiness of form. Ignorance of shunyam. Ignorance of the complete lack of reality of the body-mind and the causally interdependent nature. Sounds a little bit like Advaita. Mm. Everything just appears and disappears. Isn't that interesting? With one key difference, which we'll explore. So, avidya. Avidya causes karma, which Shankaracharya talks about a lot also. When you have ignorance, you act out of ignorance. So, karma means action based on ignorance. So, avidya is the first. It gives you karma, which is the second. And interestingly enough, karma gives you something known as vijnana. This is different from the vijnana of yoga. It means... Uh, basic consciousness. You know, so we're not talking about awareness or Brahman or Shiva. No, no, no. Just the thing that allows you to be aware now. It's not that impressive to Buddhists, this awareness. We're obsessed with it. Advaitins are obsessed with awareness. The Buddhists are like, it's one of these 12 spokes. It's just your basic consciousness, your basic experience of uh, being aware, you know? So, avidya gives you karma. Karma gives you vijnana. And out of vijnana, out of awareness, comes nama rupa, which is body. So let's, you know, backtrack to the lecture we did about uh, ontology, remember four weeks ago? Is awareness in the body or is the body in awareness? Hopefully by now, most of you who are at that class are firmly convinced that matter does not produce awareness. Awareness produces matter. You know, it's a very obvious, very easy to make point. Um, so, uh, is the diagram backward for you? Is it like upside down or is zoom adjusting? It, you know, if even if it was backwards, it would still work. That's the interesting thing. So anyway, uh, good, good. So Vignana, <laughs> awareness, gives you Nama Rupa because it is only with awareness that you can have a body. What is a body? A body is moment-to-moment -moment sense events. You know, that's what a body is. Uh, a body is an experience in awareness. It's not a thing. You cannot prove the existence of the body apart from awareness. You just can't do it. You know, it's always going to require awareness. So... Even the Buddha makes this point, and Advaitins make it throughout the years, we agree. Uh, Vijnana, consciousness, gives you Nama Rupa. What does the body give you? It gives you Shadayatana, which means the six senses. Okay, this is a profound insight. You have six senses. What's the sixth? Mind. So, this is important. Yes, Westerfer, I love it. Remember, mind is just like the nose. It just picks up on a certain sense object known as thought. Can you appreciate the absolute bombshell spiritual statement we just made? Because when you walk in your neighborhood and you smell garbage, you don't think you're a bad person, do you? Uh, when you smell lavender, you don't make a moral judgment about your character. So why should you do the same when you think a bad thought? or when you think a good thought. It says no more about you than a smell of garbage or a jarring sound of a siren at 4 a.m. It's just a sound, it's just a smell, it's just a thought. 
Interesting. So the Buddha says, out of Nama Rupa, out of name and form, meaning body, comes Shadayatana, Shad meaning six, comes these six senses. And from the six senses comes something very interesting, Sparsha. Remember, uh, what do we call Advaita Vedanta? We call it Asparsha Yoga. Uh, sp- oh, sorry, I should back up and say Sparsha means touch. Sparsha means contact. Advaita Vedanta is the yoga of teaching you that nothing is touching anything. Everything is empty. Uh, Everything is awareness. There's nothing apart from awareness, so there can be no contact experience. So stop being so lustful and fearful. That's Advaita Vedanta. Tantra says everything is always touching. (laughs) Uh, Nothing is separated. So we're in this orgiastic web of energy known as Shiva Shakti. Uh, But the Buddha This sparsha just means once you have a body, once your body has sensation, sense organs, what's going to happen? Inevitably, you're going to encounter objects of sensation. You're going to encounter the world. Uh, uh, Alicia, be careful. That's yogic philosophy. For us, mananas is the accumulation of senses. It's a little bit different, uh, but we'll get into the technicality later maybe during questions and answers. I'm approaching the end of my hour here, so I want to um, get through this last part. So anyway, here we have sparsha, which is contact with the world. When the sense organs, six of them, contact the world. So remember, out of awareness comes the body. From the body comes sense organs. From the sense organs comes contact with the world. So thus far, it's totally harmonious with everything we've been talking about so far, you know? Now, and this is known as Buddhist psychology, by the way. Like a lot of Western psychologists are interested in this model um, very secularly, outside of even the practice of Ashtanga Marga, just on an intellectual level. Okay, so from Sparsha, we get Vedana. Vedana means experience. You know, so from your contact with the world, you get experience. And then, now this is interesting, from experience you get Trishna, which is thirst. So from encountering the world, from accumulating experience, sooner or later you start to decide which experiences you like and which experiences you don't like, and that creates a thirst for experience, pleasurable experience, and that creates Upadana. Upadana means grasping. It's, it's much like the... Uh, the uh, Parigraha of yoga, it means to clutch after things that you want and maybe even push away things you don't want. This finally gives you bhava. Bhava is very interesting. It literally means feeling, uh, intuition, but bhava means um, attachment to being embodied. Why? Because you need a body to have sense organs. You need sense organs to have contact with the world. You need that to have experience. And when you have experience, you have thirst for pleasurable experience, which ultimately creates in you a feeling of wanting to be in a body. This is what the yogis called abhinivesha. It's kind of like a deep, implicit, unconscious, I don't want to say unconscious, nothing is outside of awareness, but at least relatively speaking, embedded craving to be a body. It's not a craving for particular things. It's much deeper than that. It's a craving for the body which gives you contact with things. And this is what gives you jati, birth. And, you know, I kind of drew this like outside uh, because I wanted to point out something else very interesting. There are 12, okay? Thus far we have 11. Avidya, karma, vijnana, Nama Rupa, Shadayatana, Sparsha, Vedana, Trishna, Upadana, Bhava, which gives you Jati, and that gives you the twelfth. And the twelfth I wrote here, Jaramanana. Now, Jaramanana means old age, sickness, and death. And this comes with birth. So, you must appreciate this point. The Buddhists are able to see the seed. 
in every experience. So when you hand a Buddhist an acorn, they say, ah, an oak tree. Do you notice that? Because the Buddhists know the acorn will inevitably turn into an oak. You know, and so they see the oakness inherent in the acornness. That's what you get when you have the insight into the causal interdependence of all things. You see, cause of death is birth. And exactly right. Birth is the ultimate cause of death. And interestingly enough, this is central to Buddhist thought. Birth is seen as the first step in a series of steps leading to death. So uh, Swami Sarvapriyananda was giving this talk. His talk is excellent. I'm trying to extend on it by talking a little bit more about um, some of the Puranas and folk traditions. But his talk was great. And uh, in, a, in one of his uh, Sanghas, he said, you know, if you get a new house, the, you will say, this is the first day of my new house, my new life in the house. The Buddhist will come and say, and this is the first day of its destruction. Because <laughs> the Buddhist understands in every pleasure are the seeds of sorrow and vice versa. In every sorrow are the seeds of pleasure and on and on. Uh, they become indistinguishable. Pleasure is pain. A a BDSM dungeon, LA Dungeon West. Mm. Okay, so... Um, okay, here's why I want to show you this list. It's a different way of looking at the Four Noble Truths. It's the same thing packaged in a new way. Now, this is showing us that we're coming at the same subject from many different angles in order to help you gain some kind of glimpse into what the Buddha is talking about. Now, look, what is the cause of birth? The cause of birth is attachment to the body. What's the cause of attachment to the body? Uh, grasping. And what's the cause of grasping? Thirst. And that's caused by experience, which depends on Sparsha. Now, this is unavoidable. Sparsha is unavoidable. Uh, having six senses, Shadayatana is un unavoidable. Having a body is unavoidable. Having conscience, uh, uh, consciousness is unavoidable. So what can you break in this link? If you look at the link, you can't break six senses. The yogi does though. The yogi is interested in breaking this link. So the yogi sits in meditation to achieve what they call Pratyahara which means the complete ending of the outside. That's what the word literally means. Inward seeking, ending the outside. So the yogi tries to get the link here, you know. Now, if you look at this chart, you will see spiritual strategies where they're trying to break the link. The Buddha is like, break one link and the whole thing comes down. So why not break it here at Avidya, spiritual ignorance? Because what removes ignorance? Knowledge, insight. Vipassana, Vipassana, you know, um, and that is what the Buddha had. So once the Buddha had Vipassana, once he had insight, it cured him of avidya and the whole thing broke down. Okay, now the next thing the Buddha realized, and here's my next chart for you, is the skandhas. Skanda literally means aggregate. There are five aggregates that make up your body. So you, you must remember the yogic anatomy we talked about some weeks back when we were talking uh, no, 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 that, that link is not broken for babies. They are babies because that link is there. <laughs> they, they became babies because of their spiritual ignorance. Their jati, their jaramanana caused them to... <laughs> babies are not innocent in the Buddhist tradition. <laughs> They're ultimate dotards. No, okay, okay. <laughs> Such fiends. <laughs> Didn't learn. Okay, never mind. So, um, this is not this is not to be confused with the uh, pancha kosha uh, of the yogis. You know, taitriya upanishad, annamaya kosha, pranamaya kosha. Not, not to be confused with that. Now, I like this model a lot because only one of the five aggregates is the body. The other four have to do with mental experiences. So, this is Buddhist anatomy. No, Kat, it's okay. I'm happy you were. Uh, 
What is the answer to never-ending life? Always remain ignorant. Yes, what's the answer to immortality? Stay ignorant. Because <laughs> you'll keep incarnating. That's a funny way to look at it. I like that. Um, and, and not in your experience, though. You actually feel like you're dying. Each time you feel like you're dying because you're craving the body. So it doesn't really feel like immortality. <laughs> um, okay, so the skanda mean the five aggregates. That's another thing you have to know with Buddhist philosophy. Everything is seen as a composite of some other things. And as long as a thing is a composite, it's susceptible to decomposition. You know, so your body is n none other than a composite of five things. Now, some of you were here for the reincarnation lecture. Uh, good if you were. If you're not, just let this next part, just don't even worry about it. Uh, but there are five parts that make up your mind. One part of your mind is your body. I love how elegant this is. The body is in the mind and it's one of five mental aggregates. So it's known as Rupa Skanda the body mind, if you will. Then you've got your experience skanda, your vedana. No, it's, it's distinct from the body. Then you have your sangya, which your, is your propensity to label experience. You know. Then you've got your samskara, which is known as storehouse mind. Uh, basically, it's a storehouse of impressions. I'm translating this as a volition. It's those impulses you have towards things. Like you being here tonight is a samskara. You choosing to stay awake and listen to this Drunken monkey ramble at you is a samskara. Um, when you do drugs, it's a samskara. It's a volition that's deep down. Uh, maybe Carl Jung or I think Freud might call it a subconscious complex or something, you know. And then you have vijnana, which is basic consciousness. So these are the five things in the mind. Rupa, body. Vedana, experience. Um, and notice this. Sangya is separate from Vedana. There is a distinction between experience and the labels to which you ascribe, uh, uh, the labels which you ascribe to those experiences. So there's another link you can break. If you can change the way you interact with Vedana, um, that might change your relationship to, to this, you know. Samskara means just your aggregates that cause you to continue. Bhava is a samskara. It's a, it's a desire to keep taking birth. And finally, Vijnana, which is the ability to be aware. So here's another powerful claim from the Buddhist. It's, it's, it's huge. And here it is. Since everything is causally interdependent, and follow this closely, since everything can be explained in terms of itself, you no longer need to postulate the existence of some outside deity, some purusha, some soul, some god. That's the atheism of Buddhism. The Buddha realized you don't need god. But not only that, the Buddha says, look at these five composites. Look at your own mental aggregate. In not, not one of them contains the soul. All of them are composites. All of them will decompose. All of them are causally interdependent. And what is a soul? Your definition is that thing which is beyond the body and mind. But there's nothing beyond this world of causal interdependence. That thing which persists. That thing which is not an aggregate. Not a composite. Uh, something that is a substance. Where is it? And here's the beauty of the Buddha's science. He refused to accept anything on faith. He said, if there is a self, show me. I should be able to experience it. You know, if there is a God, I should be able to see it. This statement will eerily be echoed by Swami Vivekananda. He said, the, the goal of religion is realization. If there's a God, I must see it. If there is truth, I must realize it. You know, so this attitude you must take away from the Buddhist. Do not 
under any circumstance, except on dogma, any of these things, including the soul of the self. Okay, so this is where Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta break away. So Buddhism says to all the dualistic religions out there, dualistic Hinduism, believing in <laughs> Rama or Vishnu or Shiva, to dualistic Christianity and Islam and, and Judaism, it says, um, actually not so much Judaism, but it says to many of the dualistic religions, um, there is no God apart from nature. Us Advaitins are like, yes, correct. There is no being apart from creation. There is no creator. Uh, there is no um, soul separate from body. We agree. Then the Buddhists say, um, at the same, then they, uh, this, the next thing is interesting. This is, they say that there is no soul in the body. So there's no God apart from nature, but nor is there a soul inside the body. You do not have a soul. We agree. Yes, yes. You don't have a soul. You cannot isolate this Atman that we're talking about. It's not something that's in you, you know. Um, so Buddhism ultimately in the final analysis says, since there isn't God up there, since there isn't a soul in here, everything is ultimately devoid of existence. Since everything depends on everything else for existence. Fabricio said this in a beautifully elegant way. He said, if you have a friend who is always changing every day, you call them fake. <laughs> I love that, Fabricio. You say, a love that changes, you call it unreal. Now, isn't that beautiful? The idea that we intuitively feel that which changes to be equal to that which is unreal. This is the insight. The world can be explained in of itself and in final analysis is itself void. Shunyam. Absolutely nothing. So what do you have to fear? Yeah, politicians, yes. Thank you, Fabricio. <laughs> but yes, we developed that together. No, it was all you, brother. Now, um, remember, the Buddhist, this should free you. This shouldn't scare you. Oh, it's all void. Oh. This is speaking like one of the aggregates of the mind, you know. Um, no, nothing exists, so nothing can be threatened. And nothing is there to die. Ah, now Advaita Vedanta, this is our split. We say exactly the same thing. Nothing exists apart from nature that you can call God. Nothing exists in nature that you can call soul. Nature itself is that, that being. We call it Atman or awareness. It is scary at first, Kaz, you're right. Um, and it's meeting Mara, you know, that night, that long night, a dark night of the soul where the Buddha meditated. Okay, so in Advaita Vedanta, we say, yes, if you take gold and make ornaments, can you say gold exists apart from the ornaments? No. Can you say gold is in the ornament? No. The ornament and the gold are the same thing. Now what you see is a necklace is in reality none other than gold. We call that awareness. And, and we say the reason you need awareness is to make sense of change. You can only perceive change from a relatively less changing vantage point. So if you weren't on the platform, you won't notice the train moving. If you weren't on the riverbank, you won't notice the river flowing. The Buddhists say nonsense. You don't need a substratum in order for change. And the reason the Buddhists say that is because we cannot show it to them. We cannot prove Atman. In fact, it's the one thing we cannot show. And in that sense, the Jedi and the Sith are the same in almost every which way. There's our third Star Wars reference. Two from Revenge of the Sith. Yes. Okay, so what's the Ashtanga Marga now? Now that you know all these things, the Skandhas, the Pratitya Samutpada, the um, Four Noble Truths, now that you know all of that, let's look at the way out. You know, Ashtanga Marga. Okay, there are eight. 
Um, and we won't go really into them. The first is the most important. Samyak drishti, which hopefully now you all have. Samyak drishti means right perspective, right spiritual orientation. Uh, and that's what the Buddha was trying to give you when he lectured at Sarnath. And he lectured throughout his whole life. He was trying to convey Samyak Drishti. What does Samyak Drishti give you? It gives you Samyak Sankalpa, which is intention. You get inspired, you know? You're like, yeah, um, I get it now. I don't have to suffer. Suffering is not inherent in the world. Suffering is merely the way I've been relating to that change. And I can change. It's <laughs> an irony. I can change. Of course, all you do is change. Uh, but I can get out of that change. There's a way out. Uh, so that gives you samyak sankalpa, right intention. And when you have right intention, something needs to change, right? What's the first thing that you change? Speech. Samyak vak. Change the way you talk. Tell the truth. Don't harm others. Um, importantly, remember last week in our practical Vedanta lesson, this is where I want to interweave it, we said one of the first ways you practice Vedanta, uh, non-dual Vedanta, is to just change the, your languaging. Stop saying, I am in pain. I, I, am, I am sad. No, say, there is sadness in this body or there is an experience of happiness in this moment. I don't know. But de, de, uh, I de destabilize your identity with the body and mind. Change your language. The Buddha, of course, meant it on an ethical level. From that, you get, you know, uh, uh, right livelihood. Don't be a tax collector. It actually says, by the way, in the Dharma Chakra Pravartana, there are some professions that are not kosher. Nobody liked the IRS even back then, right? Swami Sarva Priyanda was saying that too. Um, uh, so remember, don't, don't, don't be a tax collector. Don't, yeah, deracinate. I like that. I like that a lot. Don't get intoxicated. The Buddha said, don't drink, don't, don't, don't get high. Sorry, Fabricio. Don't worry, Tantra is holding the wine for you. It's, it's there, it's there. But it's like, don't be intoxicated. Why? Why does the Buddha say that? Why does he say don't get drunk? He says that because, I, maybe some of you know, pop quiz. Why does the Buddha not want you to be drunk? I know, I know, like, I have many Buddhists in the room. I've got Kaz and Westifer. So maybe you're not allowed to answer because I know that you know. Um, but does anybody, can you guess? <laughs> He's jealous <laughs> because of hangover. No, not hangover, not jealousy. <laughs> oh, there's a very famous Buddhist quote, and it explains why the Buddhists don't want you to be drunk, you know. Um, and it's actually ah, okay, Alondra, pretty much. Um, it's from Samyak Smriti. Remember, this is the multi-billion dollar industry in the West known as mindfulness. It's one of the uh, eight Ashtanga marks. Uh, and in that, we say, and this is the Buddhist phrase, it's a beautiful phrase, inadverence is death. And you know what it means to be inadverent, to be unmindful, to be not here with this moment because you miss it. Like Alondra said beautifully, you don't get to have insights if you're not paying attention. You're never going to find if you're not open to... And remember, don't seek. If you seek, you won't find. You just have to open yourself up to what's already there. You know, these insights are intrinsic to reality. So the goal of the Buddhist is to see reality as for what it is. Void and lack of self, lack of God. And this is nirvana. This frees you. And the only way you're going to see reality for what it is, is to open up into it. You can't do that if you're always running away into some mental fantasy. So the Buddha gives you the breath as an anchor. So the next text, now there's the Dharma Chakra Pravartana Sutra, was the text we just talked about. I'm transitioning now to the Annapanasati, which is a meditation manual. It teaches you the technique known as insight meditation. Now the idea is, 
all of the eight... <laughs> no. Because when you drink, it dulls the faculty of... Uh, what the Buddhists call samadhi or shamatha, if you will, uh, tranquil mind. Something about drinking gives you brief glimpses into tranquility, but it's a very unstable state and it can cause you to fluctuate and not be mindful. And you can find this in your own experience, you know. Uh, it can be ecstatic, but a disequilibrium kind of kind of ecstasy. <laughs> Hashtag Satra. <laughs> yes. So the Buddha wanted you to be mindful, much like, you know, it says in the Quran very beautifully. I think Rumi was saying this to Shams. Shams says, well, if everything is God, why don't you drink? Rumi is like, because I don't want to forget God even for one moment. Isn't that beautiful? In the Quran, it even speaks against intoxication. Um... Yeah, that's, that you can do. Yes, you can, you can be a sommelier or whatever. Smell it and swirl it. Uh, that is fine. Swirl it in the cup. I might create some Trishna though. Yeah. No, seriously, that, that's the beauty of, of being uh, like, you know, Salvador Dali says, I know Red likes Dali, but you know how he says, you can imagine him fiddling his mustache saying, one does not taste wine. One savors of its secrets. <laughs> It's like that. I'm sure there's a way um, that you can do it mindfully. But essentially, the Buddha was not against alcohol. That's important. He was against intoxication. That's what the text literally says. Not don't drink. Don't be intoxicated. You know, because that's going to cause you to lose smriti. And if you lose smriti, you won't have samadhi. And samadhi, he was... Isn't that interesting? After having renounced yoga... He uses the same word that the yogi uh, uh, yogis use, which is samadhi, meaning concentration, taste, don't smell. <laughs> this is going into some very strange territory soon. <laughs> yeah, so he's against psychedelics, he's against alcohol, he's against anything that causes you to be in an unstable state. Uh, be here now, you know, follow the breath. And if you can follow the breath, something will happen to you. So I won't get into the rest of the samyaks. You know, there's a lot. Right intention, right livelihood, right speech. They all interrelate to one another. You know, and eventually it leads to right meditation. Ideally, that's what you want. Right meditation. That gives you right samadhi. And samadhi is what ultimately gives you um, insight. So this is important. And I really want to get this point across. Um, it's not meditation that cures you. It's insight. It just so happens meditation prepares you for that insight. So as you will read in the Anapanasati, the goal of meditation is to prepare the mind. A state of uh, the mind known as shamatha is what you're looking for. Now shamatha, um, shamatha and sati. Shamatha basically means tranquil and equanimous. Only a tranquil mind can perceive these insights. So some of you, um, you know, sometimes people come on the TikTok or whatever, and it just goes way over their head, you know. Um, that's why we meditate. We would never start class before meditating together because it just won't work. Some of these, these ideas just will not land if the mind is busy. So don't do Dharma talks unless you're in a state of... And it's funny because you say, aren't you in the Dharma talk to get that state? And now I'm telling you that state is important for, yes. All of us are here for different reasons. That's why you have transcendental meditation, right? <laughs> anyway, I give them what they want so they will want what I want to give them. <laughs> so let's close here. Now, Anapanasati gives you a method, a manual. And that manual tells you to meditate. Meditation is so simple. It's laughably simple, but nothing could be harder to do. Really? I mean, it's so simple because all you have to do is not do. You're just opening up to what's already there. And the technique to do this is to twofold. One, be aware of the breath as a sensation. And two, remain soft, pliant, and open. 
in one of the texts, the Buddha says, I wrestled with my breath, like trying to sub subdue uh, buffalo. Uh, but I, you know, realized it was better to just relax. And the Zen Buddhists talk about this a lot. The worst way to catch a horse is to chase it. Just hold out an apple. It will come to you. Let it run itself, you know? So uh, Buddhist meditation is very different from yogic meditation. We, we do a lot of striving in yoga. We like focus. Breathe in through the left nostril for what? Uh, 16 beats, hold for 64, exhale for 36, visualize triangle, samadhi, samadhi. You know, we're, we're pretty intense in yoga. And plus we're clenching our ass, literally. In yoga, we are literally lifting up the pelvic floor, holding mula bandha. You know, we're literally tight in the ass when we practice yoga. The Buddha was like, no, release your mula band, relax, you know, be soft, be gentle, and just open up to what's already there. That's the key difference between Buddhist meditation and yogic meditation. So they both though, remember the Buddha for six years was grounded in yogic meditation. So remember this, in um, yogic meditation, you have an anchor known as a drishti or a dharana, some point of concentration. Buddhism also has that. In Anapanasati, what's the anchor? Breath. It's, it's the meditation object. Why do Buddhists like breath? Because it's changing. You know, the breath is always changing. At every point, the breath is changing. So what better object to meditate on in order to prepare you for the insight of the Buddha, which is the changingness? Also, isn't breath causally interdependent? Inhale turns into out exhale. Exhale turns into inhale. So the breath is causal in a way. Uh, and don't you notice a gap in between the breaths? The breath is the perfect metaphor for everything we've talked about. I mean, look at our drawing, our diagram of samsara. Is it not like a breath cycle? Inhale and exhale? This whole world has been breathed into existence. They even speak that way in the Egyptian lores, you know? So the pause of the breath, the pause at avidya and sparsha, can you sneak out? Can you enter by the narrow gate? To use Jesus's phrase. You know, so you see the breath is a great metaphor. Meditate on it. Now, another reading for you, Asanga was a monk who created nine steps of meditation. And for those of you who are interested in Vipassana retreats, you can, of course, go on, go to one and hang out with Goenka and all that. Uh, but if you want to learn on your own, I suggest Mind Illuminated by Chula Dasa. Uh, his name is actually John Yates, but you know how these people are. They always take a brown person name. <laughs> I'm kidding. Chuladasa. So um, he writes a book called Mind Illuminated, which is a great, great introduction to meditation. It, it's basically Asanga's nine levels explained in a way that everybody can understand. The nine habits of very meditative people. Fabrizio write that book. The world is in need of more uh, accessible spiritual literature. So yes, if you're interested in the technique of Buddhism, that's there for you. The mind illuminated, you practice with that. Now, you can attend a Vipassana retreat, all of that. So, importantly, um, as Buddhism develops, remember there's... <laughs> yes. As Buddhism develops, I'm glad Claire is enjoying that very much. As Buddhism develops, it splits into two schools. So there's a famous school in the north, Nalanda, and in that school, it's a Buddhist school. As there's a lot to study, as you can see. Buddhism is very brainy. It's a lot of science, a lot of stuff. Studying is the chair suffering, and they're debating. Uh, in this school in Nalanda, there were a group of truant students. They were really kind of like skipping class and, you know, smoking hash behind the science lab kind of students. 
my kind of people, you know? No. Anyway, these kids were cutting class and they were hanging out with tantrikas in the graveyard. Okay, so those of you who are here from my Tantra series, uh, you know all about this. We won't get too into it. But they were hanging out with Tantrikas. Now remember, Tantra is a philosophical, spiritual, and artistic movement that emerges in India within the popular religion of Shaivism. So Shaivism is a pan-Indian religion. It was very popular back in like the 6th, 7th, 8th, all the way up to the 12th century. In that Shaivite movement, you saw folk traditions meet Vedic traditions to give us a very beautiful kind of sexy, energetic, and, and not in the way that you might expect. It wasn't really about sex. It was about energy and embodiment um, and a real relief to all these stodgy meditators. You know, can you imagine like you're, you're a young, young Buddhist in Nalanda, you know, and all your lecturers are old and dry and they're just talking at you about the five aggregates of the mind and you're like dozing off trying to keep up with Buddhist logic. And then, ah, Travis, welcome. Good to see you. I missed you. You know, you're, you're like falling asleep at the desk and suddenly your friend says, Hey, you want to go to a rock show tonight? And by that they meant a ceremony in the cemetery with the Shaiva Tantrikas singing and dancing and having ecstatic raptures. So some of these people break away and start to practice Tantra and they start to find intersections between Tantra and, and, and Buddhism. And a, a new thing was developing, a Tantric form of Buddhism. Now, for those of you who attended the Tantra series, you'll know all about this. It's got um, profileration of deities. That's one of the things you know with Tantra. Symbolization, uh, mudras, uh, more embodied practices, uh, more symbols, 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 symbols. Tantra is all about ritual, 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 ritual. Where the only ritual you have in Buddhism is meditation, right? You just sit. But Tantra was like, no, it's not working. I need something new. So you also get a character known as Shanti Deva. I highly recommend you read his Way of the Bodhi Dharma, uh, Bodhisattva. Actually, I don't know how to translate it. It's the Bodhi Charya Charya Charya. Yavartha. That's the name of the text. Um, I think I misspelled it. I'm gonna, uh, I will transliterate it for you. But anyway, Shanti Deva was at this school. He was at this school and Shanti Deva left a kingdom, much like the Buddha. He left a kingdom in order to pursue Buddhism. He eventually settled as a monk in this, in this, uh, school. Uh, but he was very truant. And I love that Kaz was telling this story at one of our Tantra classes. He would often see a, a, a being. The being appeared to him as Manjushri, meaning the, the incarnation of wisdom. This is weird, right? Like Buddhism doesn't have any gods. But suddenly this guy is having a visionary experience of a god named Manjushri, the incarnation of wisdom, Buddhist wisdom. And Manjushri teaches him everything. And one day, uh, in order to embarrass him, to shame him, the students at Nalanda asked Shantideva to give a talk. And as he was giving the talk, and this, by the way, is a Buddhist trope. You'll see it all around Buddhist stories. He starts to levitate and he disappears. <laughs> he levitates, which is a sign of his spiritual attainment. Again, a very tantric idea. Yes, thank you so much, Mats. That's exactly the text. The Bodhicharya Vatar. Now, uh, uh, importantly, in this tradition, you're getting your first tantric elements. There are gods now. There are beings. There are these shining ones appearing through mystical experience. They are the ones that teach us. The beings are female. So one thing about Tantra, you'll know the teachers are almost always women. The, 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 the deities are almost always goddesses. So there's a goddess, Manjushri, 
very foreign element in Buddhism, Shantideva, when he teaches, performs a siddhi. Remember in Tantra, siddhis, meaning accomplishments, are a sign of your spiritual uh, attainment. So it's a, it, you should have them. You know, so Shantideva by floating is a very tantric story. Now, Tantra, uh, at least as we know it in the West, there's many kinds of Tantra, but Kaula lineage Tantra is born in a place known as Udhyana. In Udhyana, there is a myth in which one day a monk, not a monk, a, a, a mendicant was in a graveyard. He met Kali, a, a beneficent form of Kali known as Mangala. This guy turns into Gyanitranata and he goes and teaches female disciples, Keyurvati and, and all that. This starts Hindu Tantra. But Udhyana is also the birthplace of a very special Buddhist. His name is Padmasambhava, which means he who was born from a lotus. Since much like the Buddha, you know, with flowers at his feet when he was born, Padmasambhava was seen to spontaneously appear in a lotus. Now, Padmasambhava is seen as a reincarnation of the Buddha. Which is weird because someone asked the Buddha, does the Buddha reincarnate? And the Buddha said, when a flame blows out, do you say the flame went north, south, west, or east? Do you see the Buddha was rubbishing the idea of reincarnation? The Buddha doesn't reincarnate. Mind and body is reincarnate. So what is this weird tantric story about the Buddha coming back as Padmasambhava? Now you're getting some new elements. Anyway, the legend goes, Padmasambhava was born in this kingdom, Udhyana. He was already a spiritual master at age three with a lot of siddhis. The king of Udhyana, uh, um, Indra Buddha, I believe his name was, um, invited him to rule. Seeing him as special, much like the Buddha, much like Shantideva, uh, Padmasambhava said no. So here's another trope of leaving the world behind. Instead, he learnt Tantra from his mother. So again, another Tantric influence. I think her, her name was Lakshmi something, Lakshmikara. So he learned from Lakshmikara Tantra, and then he went to a neighboring kingdom and taught a woman Tantra, which is exactly what Gyanitranata did, teach Keyurvati. You know, so he went and taught a, taught a woman. When the father knew about their like lessons at night, he got the wrong idea and he puts both of them. Yeah, he steals the princess and he put both of them in the fire. He burnt them, you know, and, and uh, when the fire went away, they're still there. They're fine. So again, more Siddhis. The legend goes, Tibet was having a problem with spirits and ghosts. Another very tantric idea, right? Because it's folk and shamanic. The religion of Tibet at the time was known as Bonpo. And if you're interested in Bonpo, you can study, of course, uh, The Way of the White Cloud by Lama Angarika Govinda. Um, Angarika Govinda. So a lot of reading resources for you, hopefully. Um, and yeah, there's some another book by Walsh, a French a French uh, explorer who encounters a lot of like chod rituals, like bonpo rituals. And bonpo is very much you know tantric is or uh, bonpo gives you tantra, you know because remember a lot of the folk religions were responsible for tantra. Tantra comes from non-mainstream folk. Uh, rural religion. So Bonpo is going on in Tibet. It's very shamanic. Um, and there was a problem. The spirits went wild, you know, uh, and the local shamans were unable to restore the balance of nature. You'll remember that one lecture we did on Tantra, where we we talked about Abraham's spell of the sensuous and how shamans are responsible for maintaining the balance of nature. So it just happened to be the case that in Tibet one time in the eighth century, Pandora's box opened, the, the ghosts, hungry ghosts they call them, was ravaging the villages, crops were failing. So the Tibetans heard of this fellow 
Udiana is very close to Tibet. So they heard of this guy, um, like a magician, like a powerful Buddhist, known to be a great incarnation of the Buddha. So they asked him to come. Padmasambhava, this is the 8th century. Yeah, so somewhere towards the end of the 7th century. 750 something maybe. Dates are very unknown. Um, and Padmasambhava might be mythical. So this being known very fondly as Guru Rinpoche in Tibet, arrives in Tibet and handles the uh, hungry ghost problem. So he uses Buddhism in a tantric way. He uses his siddhis to control nature, to manage energy. You see, so this is a very tantric orientation, the idea that spirituality is also for worldly ends, like protecting people from ghosts or whatever. Now, Padmasambhava comes to teach Buddhism in Tibet. And he's like the founder, he's like the bringer of Buddhism out of India into Tibet. Uh, and Padmasam, this is the first imperialism of Buddhism, right? Like the Buddha said, go north, go south, go west, go east. The Buddha told his people to go and teach out of compassion, save people, you know? Um, it was the, it was India's first missionary attempt. You know, remember Hindu religions, uh, most of the schools of philosophy were very like, uh, exclusive, actually. You had to go and meet a teacher and then they would teach you. They didn't go out and like try to teach people. But the Buddha said, go and teach. Because this is, one of his projects was to bring this to the layman, to bring it out of the forest and to the cities. So Padmasambhava was the first international voyage of Buddhism, one of the first. Um, and he goes and he teaches this form of Buddhism, which today we call Vajrayana. So suffice to say, there are students breaking off from traditional Buddhism in the University of Nalanda. Shantideva, Padmasambhava, this marks the tantric influence into Buddhism. And that separates Mahayana Buddhism, meaning the great vehicle, from the more orthodox traditional Buddhism, which we call um, Hinayana, small vehicle or lesser vehicle. Hinayana eventually goes south. So it starts to create a stronghold, mostly in Sri Lanka. And then in Burma. So now you're getting an expansionism because there was a dynasty in southern India known as the Chola dynasty that were powerful maritime kingdoms, you know. So this maritime kingdom goes to Southeast Asia and starts to establish kingdoms. Some of those kingdoms are known as Srivijaya. It's so funny because that's a tantric name. Thank you, Alondra. Srivijaya literally means Sri Vidya, which is a tantric school. So this tantric movement starts a kingdom. Then there's Majapahit. And now all of Southeast Asia is being colonized. It's being colonized by Buddhist imperialist programs, you know, and it's tantric Buddhism that they imp export first, which is very strange. That's why if you go to Bali, you'll see tantric temples. If you go to Thailand, you'll see tantric temples. Southeast Asia is enmeshed in tantric uh, uh, tradition. Yet, while there's a lot of tantric iconography, the main practices in Southeast Asia are uh, oriented around Hinayana or Southern Buddhism. It's now called Theravadin or Southern Buddhism. And here's the difference. Southern Buddhism tries to preserve Orthodox Buddhism. It doesn't have any gods or goddesses. It doesn't care about energy. In Theravadan Buddhism, when you achieve bodhi, when you achieve awakening, you become an arhat. That's it. That's the end of your journey. Arhat means awakened one. The goal of Hinayana Buddhism is your own individual awakening. There's nothing beyond that. Or at least they don't want to talk about anything beyond that for fear of you turning it into a concept. Mahayana Buddhism is a little wilder. It's a little more exciting. And that's why people like it a lot. Now, in Mahayana Buddhism, eventually Padmasambhava gives you a very tantric strain known as the Vajrayana Buddhist school where there's weapons. 
You know, there's knives and uh, Vajras, which lightning bolts. Some of you have seen it. We talked about it last week. Um, and the most esoteric version of that is Jogjen. So in Vajrayana, you get rituals. Rituals, you get a very elaborate metaphysics involving many realms of creation and many deities. Uh, Padma Sambhava himself is said to have subdued various fierce forms of the of deities at age three you know um so let me just say this it gets very confusing at this point but vajrayana buddhism is very different from southern buddhism because in southern buddhism our hardship is it in vajrayana buddhism there's more the mind after it achieves bodhi continues on infinitely in meditation which allows the meditating master to continue to take births whether in physical bodies or in astral bodies to continue the work of the buddha not just in the buloka or earthly plane but also in other tantric realms known as the bardos so you get now an idea known as bodhisattva the idea means uh world renowned world teacher the idea that someone would become enlightened not for their own sake but for the sake of everyone else now who is more buddhist hinayanas or the mahayanas who knows? They've been debating each other for centuries now. One has been like, we are more orthodox because we don't have all these gods. The Buddha would have been like, oh, what Manjushri, what? Uh, whereas the Mahayanas are like, we're more Buddhist because the Buddha set out to enlighten everyone. So bodhisattva-ness is higher than, you know, our hardship. That's selfish. So there's been this tension between the two schools of Buddhism. A very important Buddhist, his name is Sangkapa. Sangkapa eventually, you know, in Tibet, forms the Gelukpa school, which gives us the Dalai Lama today. You know, so that should cover Buddhism in South Asia. Now, so sorry, there's one last thing. Three minutes tops. I know, it, it was a lot. I was too ambitious today. Three minutes tops. Japan. There's an imperialist program. It's spreading all over. Central Asia becomes super Buddhist, tantric Buddhism. And China becomes Buddhist and, and it's expanding everywhere. They're, they found Buddhist um, remains in Egypt. There was in Coptic Egypt, there was some Buddhist remains, some as far as Greece. So it's a big maritime quest. Uh, and eventually these ships get to, 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 <laughs> I know, sorry. Actually, no, wait, that's good, right? The Zens would want it. Nothing, they would want nothing more than less spoken. So, you know, we're preserving the true essence of Zen. So Zen traces its origin to a certain lecture the Buddha gave. I remember I told you, if you go to a party and you meet the Buddha, um, it's, he's going to be very talkative, very verbose. He has a lot to say. But one day he came out to give a lecture in which, surprisingly, he said nothing. All he did was hold up a flower you can imagine the audience, many of whom had walked miles and miles to hear this sermon from this brilliant teacher. Now they want their money back, you know, because they paid for the ticket and they didn't pay, it was free. But they, want, they, they wanted a lecture, but he just stood with his flower. It turns out only one person got it. One person in the audience started to smile. It was the secret smile transmitted from the Buddha. And this is also kind of a very tantric idea, transmission. You know, diksha, it's called initiation or shaktipata. It's a very tantric idea. Now, um, this person who smiled eventually goes on to start the Chan tradition in China, which becomes the Zen tradition in Japan. And it's what we might call esoteric Buddhism. But it's different from the Vajrayana esotericism. So Zen and Vajrayana are diametrically opposed. You cannot imagine two more tense opposites. Vajrayana is full of gods and goddesses and bardos and texts and logic and rituals and debate. They debate, 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 debate. Um, but Zen is, um, 
is so austere, they don't like to debate. They prefer to work with contradictory statements known as koans, which are meant to confuse and befuddle the mind. So the mind wants to you know, chew on intellectual stuff, the Zens will beat you, literally beat you over the back of the head. So you stop doing that. The Zens teach in a very um, kind of intuitive way that is, uh, as Douglas was saying, you can spend years with Zen monks and you'll never know what they believe or don't believe because it's not about belief, you know? So uh, one of the famous Zen statements is if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, you know? Thank you, Aisha. Take care. And why? Kill the Buddha you meet on the road. Because if you meet him on the road, that implies that he's separate from you. You've forgotten that Buddha nature is deep within. This is why the Buddha perhaps committed suicide. Like he ate his poison because he was killing the Buddha on the road, which just so happened to be him, <laughs> his body, you know. Um, so Zens, they're, maybe they're the real Buddhism. Who knows? All of them express Buddhism because... Buddhism expresses truth and truth is inexhaustible in expression. So however it is that Buddhism found you, the beauty of Buddhism is that it works with every other practice. You can be a Christian Buddhist. You know, it'll work perfectly fine there. Buddhism as a practice is perfectly secular. It doesn't ask you to take anything on faith. It asks you to practice um, and it asks you to learn from yourself. Yes. Um, and that will empower you in every other thing. Whether you're a tantrika, whether you um, believe in the more tantric, or, or I should not believe, gravitate towards the more tantric forms, do that. Whether you gravitate towards the more zen, austere forms, do that. It's a wide umbrella, but in some shape or form, Buddhism has influenced so many cultures. Um, and we'll close with one final story. Okay, this is my favorite story from the Yogacharya school. Young, there were, there were some Buddhist... Um, in the courtyard, in a temple in Tibet. And they were all different ages. So the youngest of them, the most junior of the monk, junior most monk, looked around and he said, huh, look, the flags, you know the prayer flags? The, you've seen the prayer flags? He, from Bonpo, actually, shamanic roots. He says, ah, oh, look, the flags are flapping, they're moving. You see, the flags are moving. A more senior monk said, ha, no, my boy. The flags are not moving. The wind is moving. So already they become more subtle. They're looking at causes. The, the flag is not moving. The wind is moving. Then, yeah, then the older monk, the, th the, the, the senior most of the three of them said, no, my boys, nor the flag, no, not the flag, nor the wind. The mind is moving. And they're like, oh, that's so deep, you know. Then the senior most monk at the monastery, who at the time was taking a nap in the room upstairs, overhears the conversation, pokes his head out of the room and says angrily, you fools, all I hear is tongues moving. <laughs> all right, let's close here with an om and a few chants of um, a powerful mantra. The idea is to feel the mantra um, vibratorily, you know. So let's, it's a tantric mantra, heart sutra mantra. So let's come. Let's sit. Importantly, don't do anything. Just open up to what's already there. Natural, easeful, spontaneous. Ah. Uh...
南行法蓮華経南行法蓮華経南行法蓮華経南行法蓮華経南行法蓮華経南行法蓮華May you be free of suffering and from the causes of suffering. May all beings know love and joy. May all beings be united with the causes of love and joy. May you be unafflicted by the tides of north, south, east, and west. May you be content with what comes. May you endure with what cannot be avoided. May you wander the world as a rhinoceros. Free, free, free. Thank you all for being my teachers. Shanti, Shanti, Shanti.